We are back. It is the final episode of A Dance with Dragons, our official, as we call it, Valar Reredus review. Review us, we could call it. Re-review us <laughs> if we were doing it again. It's been a long road. It's been really fun. A Song of Ice and Fire is, you know, a huge series. It's not complete, so it's gaining hugeness as we speak, hopefully. And... Well, one thing that comes with so much time spent in a world is, well, we get lots, we have lots of thoughts, we have lots of familiarity, and that's a great thing. It's a, it's a thing to celebrate when we all are so deep into this material, we all understand it so well. If other people were to overhear us who don't know A Song of Ice and Fire, they'd be like, what the hell are they talking about? It's like we're speaking some other language <laughs> despite it still being English. I, I think we could compare us to appropriately to uh, Grateful Dead fans, uh, that's appropriate because George is a big fan of the Grateful Dead, who they all go around <laughs> to different places around the country. They all kind of <laughs> know each other, even though they don't live in the same cities. And they're all obsessed with the same thing that a lot of other people don't exactly get why they're so obsessed with it. So that's us, right? <laughs> we, our hair isn't as long. We don't do as much drugs, but <laughs> or any in some cases, but still. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful community that we have. And I just like celebrating that here at the beginning as we've reached this great milestone. So welcome back. Great friend, Lady Gwyn of Radio Westeros. How are you doing? And how does it feel to be done with this current reread? Well, thank you for having me back. Um, doing okay. Just, uh, we're keeping busy over at Radio Westeros. Yeah. Tell us what's uh, uh, going on over there with Radio Westeros these days. Well, right. we're doing uh, our Winds of Winter Primer series, so we've kind of been almost in tandem with you as you've gone through Feast and Dance in terms of uh, rereading, but we're looking more looking forward to what's going to be happening in, in Winds. And uh, actually, if I recall correctly, we started out with in tandem as well because we were doing our uh, Game of Thrones uh, prologue episode right when you started Valerie Reedus, so... Things just lined up so nicely. (laughs) Taking this journey together. We should start back at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) That's where we'll be. (laughs) (laughs) And welcome back, Nina. You have been... We tried to figure out exactly when you first started participating with Valerie Reedus. We we thought it was around Clash, right? We we didn't find... We didn't pinpoint it. But most of the time, and of course, you've been contributing before it was official as well. So how does it feel to be... (laughs) To get to this point and... uh, and to be back here. It's good. You know, it's it's such a enormous series when you when you start out and you think of how many hundreds and thousands of pages it is and then you get to the end and it's like, wow, we we really went through it all, didn't we? So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, it's good. You know, you you always learn something new. You always take away something new and it's good to, you know, chat with it with friends so <laughs> yeah that's the journey and the destination are both great right it's fun the, to have made it the through. valerie Reedus really was the friends we made along the way <laughs> yes yes <laughs> we made new friends we 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 strengthened existing friendships and we all know the material a lot better than we did which is itself a way to enhance all those friendships because we all have even more to talk about and Joe Buckley, uh, same questions for you. How does it feel to be through this current reread and to make it to get to this point again? And uh, how are you feeling in general? Best way I could sum it up was the day before last, I had eight hours of sleep, which has not happened probably since the started <laughs> Valoridis. So that, that's the marker for you. That's how I progressed. And that's uh, how I'll remember it. But 
yeah, it has been a good journey. We've still got one more episode to do over the on the um, over on the other faces, so that'll be that'll be the true end. But uh, I'll make sure I don't get too mixed up of where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to be talking about today. <laughs> <laughs> of course, yes. Well, let's get started. Um, one thing that I think is really neat that I want to compare to TV, and I don't mean the TV show Game of Thrones, although you could apply some of this to that. Less so, though, because what I'm talking about is familiarity with characters. And when we all saw the TV show, most of us had read the books already. So if you hadn't, then you're, you know, you're, uh, you approached it a little differently. But let's take a, take a lot of shows that you've seen like five, eight, ten seasons of. A lot of times, the first season, the, sh- the characters maybe haven't completely been solidified. For example, say the X-Files. I don't know if you all recall or if you've even seen the X-Files, but the very first episode, Mulder was not a moody, sort of withdrawn, introverted guy. He was a geeky extrovert. Like, he couldn't wait to tell all his stories about aliens. That's just a very different character. And... There's a lot of examples like that where, say, in The Office, Michael Scott, first season, he has his hair slicked back. He's a lot, he's, his sense of humor is a little different. He's, he's creepier rather than awkward. I mean, he's both. But these things find their way, right? They take a little while to get settled. And the same is true in A Game of Thrones. There's a few things early on in the early chapters that some of the characters do that you look back on it and it's like, that's maybe a little strange. Like when Tyrion says, the Lannisters take what is offered. And it's like, do they? <laughs> and someone calls Aegon, Aegon Dragonlord, and no one ever calls him that again. And it's just, this is little tidbits like that where the world isn't completely settled. The flip side of that is where we're at now. This does not apply anymore to any of us listening to about A Song of Ice and Fire. We know this stuff so well. And I think that's something that comes along with that. Isn't it? In book one, you want it to be interesting. You want it to be entertaining. But you maybe don't have expectations for character behavior because you don't know them that well. But now, five books through, however many years you've been in this fandom, whether it's 10 years, 20 years, who knows, you have opinions about characters. You have things you maybe expect them to do or don't do. And that really changes the picture. It really changes what your your experience. When we see Daenerys behave a certain way or Tyrion behave a certain way in book one, we're kind of like, oh, okay, that's what's happening. But when they do something in book five, you're maybe more bought in and like, no, don't do that. <laughs> or wait, please don't. I hope it doesn't go this way. So we that's something that I wanted to draw our attention to as we get started here is just how much more bought in we are with all these characters and how much more our expectations have been raised, how much more personally we take a lot of it, and and just seeing this long-term process. What we're going to start with is what POV surprised you or you, that you focused on the most. It's kind of a similar question to, the, to where we started with our past reviews uh, at the end of various books. So uh, Lady Gwen, we'll start with you. What did what POV surprised you the most this time or uh, had you think in new things? Well, okay, I'm going to... <laughs> I'm going to immediately start by scratching my initial answer because I said I was surprised the most by Mel, and that was pretty much my first read. Uh, on the reread, I would say I was surprised the most by Ash Greyjoy. Uh, I just like her more every time, and I really did not ever expect that, to be honest, after my first read of her. And then as for focus, sticking with the Greyjoys, I spend so much time focused on Theon. Um, mm untangling that northern storyline and every time i reread these chapters uh they never fail to yield up some new nuance yeah so i just can't get enough of those 
I love all the different locations he goes to. That's something that's really neat, right? He goes to some cool Mm. places we've never been. That's some of those nuances and details that you can just kind of pick out. What about you, Nina? Probably for me, Daenerys and Jon. Um, They have uh, two of the longest arcs, obviously, in the book. I would consider them the two most interesting for me personally. They're very complementary in a lot of ways. They're also very different in a lot of ways. But I just like focusing on them in particular this time around because I'm looking forward and looking, thinking about, you know, what's, what's the end game? What are we going to look at in you know the last two books? They are going to be the two, you know, most central figures, you know, no, no question. They are going to be at the heart of everything at the end. So, you know, focusing on them when they finally really come into their own as leaders uh, in this book was, was really engaging to me. That's a great point. Yeah. I think we really tried to focus on that while we were going through it. It's something that's, I'd say it's a little more of an advanced class topic is looking all the parallels between (laughs) Danny and John, because you really have to know those stories well to be able to detect them. Um, Mm -hmm. some things you can detect maybe more easily, but there's so many, so much of it is just layered under many levels of detail and, and subtlety, but you're right. They go through a lot of the same challenges in very, with very different circumstances, yet not so different in other ways. Joe, what about you? Um, where was your, uh, where did you find your focus landing the most? Well, if I was smarter, I probably would have prepared better and looked back and found who I talked about most on average each time or something like that. But <laughs> I haven't, so I'll have to kind it. of wing it. <laughs> uh, I think Lady Gwen made a good point. For some of us who've done multiple rereads, you can kind of pick which one and who surprised you when. Because it's different every single time you reread. That's just how much material there is, and you can't take it all in at once. But I think this time round, the ones I wasn't expecting to focus on as much were probably a, a combination of Quentin and Barristan, especially obviously, as we get later in. Um, I think I just kind of got Marine a bit more. I think beforehand, if you'd asked me any questions, I would have had to go and check the wiki and make sure I'm talking about the right person because all the names are so different and there's so many characters anyway. This time, I think I'd be a little bit better. Now, two weeks down the line, maybe it will have gone out of my head again. But at the moment, <laughs> I feel a little more comfortable knowing what's going on and what the theories are and everything like that. So I just enjoyed those ones a bit more. I, again, I just think I understood them a bit more. But also probably Aya would be my second choice because I'm not a great fan of Feast Aya, but the two and dance really turned me around, especially the last. I really love that chapter. And probably the prologue as well. Varamir is just, every time I read it, there's more and more because obviously you read the book afterwards and you see why it's all in there. So um, it just is worth more every time you see it. Well said. Yeah, I think um, I would echo what you said about Marine, understanding it better, even though I had read it so many times, I'd never sat down and written and done this level of detailed exploration on my own. So mostly I'd been working with my own memory and just repetition of, of discussing it. So I'm with you there. That was a big change for me, understanding some of the nuance between the factions. Uh, I was not as clear on some things as I could have been before. And I would also say I spent more time, I think, thinking about kind of echoing Nina on more Daenerys than John, I think, because I'm more puzzled by what's coming for Danny and trying to figure it out, like paying attention to her state of mind. And the same with Tyrion. I paid more attention to Tyrion because he's someone that I think there's an a, there's a attitude that Tyrion may have been one of the more misrepresented characters in the show versus book, but we can't be sure of that, right? There's no guarantee of that. That's just a strong guess that's out there. So I was really trying to reevaluate that guess. Um, I know a lot of people expect Tyrion will maybe be a reason that 
uh, we'll, we'll push Danny towards darker things. I'm not sure that we arrived at a, a level that makes me confident in that. Definitely see the possibility, though. What makes The Dance with Dragons different from the other books in A Song of Ice and Fire? There's some obvious things that we maybe don't need to mention, or I can at least summarize here, like, well, it's got the most POVs, or it's, you know, the <laughs> most... It has plot points ending in the middle, which that doesn't really happen so much in the other books. But those are more large structural things. I, I, let's see what kind of other answers y'all have. Lady Gun, um, what do you think? What are some of the standout differences within this book as compared to the other four? Well, it is that it's setting up action um, for plot points that we haven't gotten the payoff for yet. Mm. That, you know, especially those big battles that we're moving towards. Uh, in multiple different locations, which is really a factor of page space in a couple of, of cases. But that said, there's a lot of action here, which distinguishes it from Feast, which obviously was very, very different. And we've moved on from what's largely kind of chaotic and tragic themes that were happening in Storm. We really see things starting to coalesce and the groundwork being laid for the conjunction POVs coming back together and I wrote Big Bang Metaphor. So <laughs> the early books, everyone's going outwards. And then now uh, in dance, you can see everything starting to kind of shrink back down. Yeah. Well said. In fact, that's that's how I opened every episode of A Dance with Dragons uh, for Valerie Reedus is uh, with my little spiel. Part of it was, this book brings POVs together. And really, that's <laughs> that's something we're going to talk about specifically. Uh, we're going to line up where they started, where they ended, and, and so people can kind of get a great idea of, of uh, just what that all means. What about you, Nina? I think the thing I wrote was um, A Dance of Dragons is, is, a, is a wonderful mess. And here's, <laughs> here's what I mean by that. Uh, a Dance of Dragons is really kind of a book in three parts. And I don't mean chronological parts. I mean, you know, substantive parts. You've got one part, which is these really good book-length arcs. So, you know, John's arc, Danny's arc, Quentin's arc, Theon's arc. These really good, you know, exploring a lot of really interesting themes and, and narrative styles. Uh, and then you've got the things I didn't finish, meaning the author didn't finish in A Feast for Crows, so I got to keep telling you that story. So the Asha stuff, the Victorian stuff, the Arya stuff, to a lesser extent, the Damien Cersei stuff. Uh, and I'm using stuff and not arc because they're really not arcs. They're really just sort of the things I didn't finish. Yeah, um, yeah they're like part then, of an arc, yeah. And part of an arc. Um, you can read sort of Feast and Dance together as maybe their whole arc. Yeah. And then you've got the stuff you need to know for the winds of winter, so I'm going to throw it in there. So let's have Melisandre be a POV, because I need her to be a POV for the winds of winter. I'm going to introduce Don Connington, because I need him to be a POV for the winds of winter. I'm going to throw in a random Jamie chapter, because I kind of need to transition into what he's going to do in the winds of winter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and all of these three parts all kind of don't really go together. They're all kind of these very disparate things. So it's sort of juggling these three balls in the air. And not that anything is is bad by any stretch of the imagination. It's all really good stuff, but it's all kind of a mess. And when you find out that a bunch of chapters were moved from A Dance of Dragons to The Winds of Winter, it starts to make a little more sense as to how it ended up as kind of the wonderful mess that it is. I don't know if that would have made it more or less of a mess, but uh, it's it's definitely an, an interesting, interesting entry. 
it's really uh, impressive. Yeah, I agree with you that there's these these bit of chaos to it. It's really kind of impressive that it's not more chaotic because, as we know, like his this was yeah. not his plan. He didn't. This this five year gap was scrapped. He he meant for it to be one book. There's so many things that he changed midstream, and the fact that they do work so well together is a testament to his abilities. Because yeah, it was not part of his initial plan. Well, I, I definitely am one of those people obsessed with how the, the structure is different and especially in that final third and how all the three men, the three main characters kind of take a back seat for a little while and we get all the feasties coming back in and we have all these smaller arcs to come back in. It's such a different structure. But in terms of actual plot and what's actually going on, if you can put like a word to each of the books, I think dance could be the most different words, if you get what I mean. Like, I think the first one I would think of is consequence. Uh, we get all these consequences in the first four books, but as Nia is saying, at the exact same time, it's also seed setting for wins. So it's a really interesting how he balances both of those. And then I, I guess in a meta way, I think this is going to be remembered as the middle book on its own, because I think Feast is something really different and like a kind of addendum is outside the normal line of the So you have the first three all going to be grouped together. And I think you're going to have wins and spring. When it's all said and done, people will think of those two grouped together. I think this is this will be the one that people remember most because like you said at the beginning, this is where the fandom kind of really exploded when the TV show came out. For most people, they've spent the most part of their time waiting for wins and hopefully we won't get a, the exact same repeat between wins and dream. But for people who have started podcasts or got involved in the fandom or just started reading in general, the normal, the average save state for them is at the end of dance. So the, the bit we get to at the end here like the, the big questions of here, like what happens to John and what happens to Daenerys and Marina and everything, those would be the ones that people would have spent the most time thinking about because this is the time you spent most in the series, if you get what I'm saying there. That's a great point. Yeah, this period in real life that might be 30 years from now, it might not be so clear to, to newer people uh, how important mm. this era was. But you're right, that's a great point. Like as far as a fandom milestone or a fandom era, this is when the vast majority of new readers came to the series. Um, when the Dance with Dragons was out, but before the Winds of Winter. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting disconnection between so many characters, even though they come together so well. There's just spots here and there with chapter arcs kind of, or character arcs ending, you know, as soon as one third of the way through the book, um, like in Davos's case and in Bran's case, it's only just around halfway. But I'm still impressed by how well the, the character themes connect to each other and how well some of the uh, how many, some of the parallels are going on with the type of conflict that they're facing, and as well as some of the the places they go. For example, we pointed out at the time how many characters were underground all around the same time, with Quentin and Danny looking at the dragons underground while Bran was under the Hollow Hill or the Three Eyed Raven's Cave, whatever you want to call it. That that location does not have an official name, does it? <laughs> and uh, while also. John was going down under the wall to look at the wormways, all of this. And, and at the very same time, we have at least one more. I think Davos was in the dungeon. All, all, all these things were happening at the same time. And that sort of was reflected in the way we do our, our own homemade titles for the chapters. And whenever possible, we tried to make titles that would link, that made you know, connected to others, like they would have a similar structure to each other. And uh, that became easier near the end of this book because so many things were coalescing together. Okay, next question. Character who you have changed your opinion on the most since your first read. It's a little, it's a somewhat similar to the first question. There's a little bit of overlap, but like first impressions are a big deal, right? But after now, 
all of you all have read the book, this, this series several times, so it's, it's, it's quite possible that your opinions have changed massively on certain characters. I am going to have to stick with my boy, Theon, because okay. I'm quite sure on my first read, I did not feel nearly the same complexity of things about him as a character that mm. I do now. And also to tag on to that first answer as well, Melisandre, because knowing her backstory and being in her head changes so much the things that you think about her when you read about her in other point of views. So when you go back on the reread, before she you get her point of view, you already have this knowledge about her and the backstory. It really changes your perspective on her. And again, if we're talking about non-point of view characters, I'd have to go with Aegon because that's factor of studying, delving into theories, and really, really, I think, very differently about him than I did the first time I read the books. What about you, Nina? Who is your biggest change? So kind of cheating because I'm repeating my first answer, but Daenerys um, is probably my um, the biggest change. I think when I first read this book, I was a little less appreciative of what the Miranese story was. I kind of looked at it as just sort of a, oh, this is just sort of a, a holdover until Daenerys gets to Westeros. And I didn't really understand what kind of the thematic point of it was. Mm. Um, but now having read it a lot, uh, I think I've come to some very key understandings of what the storyline is, what it is doing, how it fits into both the stuff she did before and the stuff that I think she's going to do going forward. So definitely, definitely Daenerys for me. Yeah, you could kind of maybe after all this time, I think we can't be 100% confident, but we have more of a sense of what George's plan for her is. And it's really quite intricate and amazing even though i mean i certain. feel confident but i could be 100 percent wrong yeah so. <laughs> <laughs> well said yeah so i'm gonna give two short answers rather than one longer answer i'm gonna say i'm gonna start off by saying kevin because kevin is one that i definitely i basically went the fell for the party line with him the kind of the thing varus is saying that he's a decent man in service to bad folk and i just kind of took that at face value the first time i read it but on rereads, multiple rereads, and it seems like every time I find new reasons to fake things. But this guy had a lot more, uh, a lot larger role. He never once like argued with Tywin. He never, he just went along with all these awful things. And then just really understanding too how much he had to do with the walk. I didn't, I didn't fathom, I didn't fully grasp how much of it was his in initiative. You know, that's not great either. So, I definitely see him differently. And that's more of like a, a total attitude change for me in, in general, not just Kevin, like how I view people and the way they, their actions matter. So it's more of a life experience thing. But also on another level, I would say uh, I view Bran differently than when I first saw him. I, not being a super experienced reader when I read the series the first time, someone who more read as a more casually, you know, that's something I think I've learned in the uh, being in a Song of Ice and Fire reader over these last 20 years is just being a better reader. And with Bran, I really treated him more like a child. I really didn't think about how his upbringing was affecting his decisions. I didn't think about how his youth was shielding him from some of the horrors around him in ways that may come up later. And I think it's just like understanding how child's minds operate. Not that I can say I understand how a child's mind operates but more than I did. And that really changes how I view the younger characters. This also has to do with how I see Arya, but Bran's even younger. So I think a little bit more towards him. So you were talking about John Connington there, I believe. I don't think I was ever 
dead set against him on first read or second read or whatever it was. But um, definitely on this one, I'm just way, way more invested. He's kind of leapt into like, my top five of storylines or POVs I really, really want to get to for wins, which he definitely wasn't beforehand. And again, with only two chapters, that's quite a, an effect to make, even however many times you read them. But definitely not even in terms of importance to the plot overall, not in, even in terms of Aegon, just of himself and what happens to him and what does he find out and what's the truth he needs to find out and what time does he have left and all these many things. I'm more interested in him as a person than I am in his role in the plot, which I don't think I would have said before this reread. Mm, okay, yeah, well said. Now, most of the questions from listeners uh, we're saving for the end, but a couple of them I've put in other spots because they're particularly relevant or I just wanted to, I, I thought they fit in other places. And here's one from Noga F. If you had to add one and space is no issue, in other words, you don't have to worry about the book getting too long. What POV would you add to a dance with dragons? And Noga says for their own pick, Green Grace or perhaps some other Miranese local to get us more of an insight to what's going on there. Lady Gwen, who would you uh, add to A Dance with Dragons? I'm going to continue my incredibly uncreative focus on the North. <laughs> <laughs> Can you guys guess what's my favorite storyline? <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, I would pick Mance or Bowen Marsh, maybe, mm, Bowen especially Marsh. Bowen Marsh. But also, and this is kind of more tongue-in-cheek, how about Robert Glover? What the heck is he up to? I'd love ah. to be in his head and... Yeah. Solve that mystery. He so. could give us some. He could also <laughs> give us some some extra fill in on some things that happened during the war too, because he was uh, in the south for a lot of that. Yeah, <laughs> just a little extra fill. We may not need that, but I would definitely eat it greedily. <laughs> I would take it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty good calls. Yeah, like the mind spins when you imagine the perspective of one of because there's so many possibilities. You immediately are like, yeah, what would he be thinking about? Yeah. I just want to be God and know what everyone's doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I choose George R. R. Martin. Right. <laughs> uh, Joe, I see your answer is next here in the document, so we'll go to you next. Well, I'll stick in the North as well, but a little bit further North. I'd pick Mira Reed if I could have any Ooh. POV, just because, one, I just really love Mira and she should have more time on the page. But also, I think, imagine if she was, she just had one chapter after Bran's arc finished, how creepy that could be in her seeing the reality of what the cave is actually like and seeing Bran just tapped into the tree 24-7 and, I don't know, she's wandering around wondering where Jojen is and she hasn't been told or something. It could be a very, very dark, creepy chapter. Ooh. It'd just be interesting to get that setting without Bran's childish mind being a barrier so much. That's a good point. Yeah, I like that idea a lot. That's another one that just sends the mind spinning. Now I'm like, oh yeah, Mira. Mm. She could also think about like her father, which that's a big yeah, one. Yeah. That we're all really curious about. She could find Dark Sister. Yeah. What's this? <laughs> and, What's and this found? She'd be more interested and like she'd be less, like you said, she'd be less caught up with the mystical stuff um, like personally. Yeah. So and she could, you know, the exploring and stuff, we could do that. That's a great idea. Um, Nina, what do you think? I'm going to be different and I'm going to go to a place that's not the North and I'm going <laughs> 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 no, I think, uh, Eerie or Jikui, I think oh. would be interesting. And I, and I say Eerie or Jikui because after five books, they're still basically interchangeable. Um, <laughs> but no, I think it's interesting, you know, the idea of Daenerys is such a central, you know, apocalyptic hero figure. She is someone that, you know, all of these events are circling around. What is it like to have been with her Almost literally from the beginning. They are with her from her third chapter of A Dance with Dragons on. Like, they they are there. So having witnessed 
all of this that she's doing, you know, witnessing her birth dragons, go through the red, red waste, go to Karth, sack these cities, rule Mirin. What is that like for them? What do they think of this? Yeah. What do they think of her coming from coming from a slave society as they do, what do they think of her as being the breaker of chains? Coming from a society that does not grant women any kind of real political power, what do they think of her being a real political force? It's it's very intriguing to me. So yeah, I'd absolutely love to see what what they think of it. You could write the whole series from one of their points of view and it would be pretty compelling. Yeah, that's a great, great answer. I like that a lot because if you're right, it's so rich because it gives us, there's so much... They've been there the whole time. Plus, we just don't have any Dothraki POV. So that, too, would give us a lot of insight into their culture and, and things, just that alone. I think I'm right in saying, so for when we have Quentin and Baston POVs, obviously for Baston, but Quentin's third one doesn't come until after Danny's gone either. So if we were to get an Eerie or Jukri, that'd be the first time we ever see Daenerys through anyone else's eyes, yeah. except like Tyrion had that one kind of glimpse across the pit, but that's it. And she's... I would imagine like one of the only POVs we haven't seen, especially one of the main ones. So that'd be really interesting. I wonder if that is a choice by George that he's holding back on that for whatever reason. That's a really good observation. Yeah, we haven't really seen her through other people's eyes pretty much at all. Great point, because Barristan's POV starts after she's gone. So he's thinking about her, but he doesn't see her uh, on page. Mm. That's a, yeah, that's a really good point. I would, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a somewhat structurally similar but different answer. I'm going to say Aegon young griff because i'm super curious like how they treated this kid to make him think of who he is and the lies they told him and what he thinks of his uh, opportunity and his ambition and and just how this how he perceives it all what he thinks of john connington what he imagines is true about his father who isn't probably his father and uh, just little tidbits that we would we could pick up about illyrio and maybe varus as well things like that i would be very interested in that mm. That would be pretty fun <laughs> to get some music. Really, this is a real, this could be a whole episode. Other POV possibilities, <laughs> just if we were to take more time and think them through and imagine what they'd be like. One thing I think makes this book different too is the way it ends. There's a lot of cliffhangers and sort of cliffhangers, which isn't necessarily the case for the other books. The other books have a lot of things get resolved sort of, or you can see how some new plot line has started. Like the end of Game of Thrones, you have the, all these exciting developments like Rob is crowned and Danny's dragons hatch. There's, and then at the end of A Clash of Kings, a lot of it is the end of this battle and that involves so many POVs and then Bran, you know, emerging from the crypts and all that. Uh, in this book though, yeah, there's a lot, there's several things that somewhat, it's arguable what you would call a cliffhanger. I wouldn't call Cersei's trial being in five days a cliffhanger, especially because we know from pre-release Winds of Windsor chapter that it seems to be resolved anyway. Barristan, I would say the same. That's not really a cliffhanger, having the corpses flung over the walls. It certainly says action is coming. Uh, and that's also a ditto to Cersei's in that we already have some advanced knowledge of what's going to happen given the Winds of Winter chapters. Same goes for Tyrion, because Tyrion's right there with Barristan. John Connington, I would say basically the same thing, even though he's on another continent. We know he's about to take Storm's End. It's not really a cliffhanger because we have Ariane chapters that basically reveal that this was successful. But now we get into some of the other ones where it is start to be more cliffhanger, and there's a lot of these. Asha and Theon, hmm, also maybe not a cliffhanger, but really imminent. Battle is coming. It's really close. We have a lot of different POVs pointing to that. Davos, also not a cliffhanger, but we're, it's, this is more like the end of 
of one plot to beginning of another. We're very excited for what's happening with Davos, but I wouldn't call that a cliffhanger. Brienne, Brienne's feast ending was as cliffhangery as you can get. Except again, we found out that she's no longer hanging and she's with Jamie. So I would call that a cliffhanger still because Jamie leaving his army and going off with Brienne into what's certainly a trap of some kind. It's in the middle of the action. Danny, very much a cliffhanger. Dothraki, angry, armed, violent, right there. Her dragon, right there. Like stuff is about to go down. But perhaps most of all, John's is a cliffhanger because even though it seems pretty clear he's been stabbed to death, and we're all pretty confident he's coming back. There's really nothing more cliffhangery than stopping a scene in the middle of action. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. as like swords are drawn, daggers are dripping with blood still, and it cuts away. That's really as dramatic as you can get in terms of interrupting the action. After all that, after all that, this long spiel of these different plot lines, which of these plot lines do you all think? is are you the most excited for and which do you think is the hardest to predict and or are you the most excited? So most excited for and hardest to predict. Nina, what do you think? Hardest to predict, I would say, for me, unquestionably, is the Ariel Hota storyline. Ooh, uh, nice. Unquestionably, that is the hardest to predict for me because I have literally no idea what George R. Martin is going for other than like backdoor getting in information about the Danes of the Tower of Joy that he was probably going to get in before the five-year gap wasn't a thing. But otherwise, I have literally no idea where it's going. I have no idea how it resolves. I have no idea how Ario dies. I assume he will die at some point, but I have yeah. no idea if it's going to be in the Winds of Winter, after the Winds of Winter, accompanying Doran's death, separate from Doran's death. No idea. So that for me is the biggest question mark of of the winds of winter is what is going to happen with that story great um most interesting to me there's a lot that are interesting yeah that's that might be a tough one you may just have to pick one uh, Uh, at random (laughs) oh my god i like (laughs) you know i think i I think santa is really interesting to Mm. me because it's a plot line that i I have a general idea where it's going, but I also, there's a, enough room for me to have question marks and to wonder what's going to happen. So, you know, I, I have a general idea of some story beats, but it, there's enough room that I'm like excited to be surprised by, it, I guess is, is the best way to put it. Right on. Okay, cool. And Joe, what about you? What are, what do you think here? Well, as you're speaking about the non-cliffhangers or semi-cliffhangers we have, I think we kind of have the, the, the cliffhangers about to spill over into cliffhangers. Like we have the hint of them, but they're not actually quite there yet. Because if you look at the other elite, maybe not Feast so much, but the first three, all the public points have been completed in those. So like Ned has fallen or the Blackwater's happened. The big things have already happened in those books. Whereas this one, we still have personal cliffhangers like a Danny, for example, but the big public things are still just over the horizon. So it's a slightly different uh, type of cliffhanger, like you say. In terms of what I'm most excited for, well, the prediction ones, much like John, I know nothing. I'm absolutely <laughs> terrible at predictions, so I won't even bother you with all of those. But one I'm most excited to see, in terms of just instant aftermath, like which chapter do I want to read first, it will be up at Castle Black and just the immediate aftermath of what happens with John. If we're lucky enough to see it, maybe we're not, maybe we get it later on. But what I'm hoping is, Melisandre, Ghost John, I don't care who, to show me that first 10 minutes after John hits the floor and <laughs> everything goes off because you've got, 
I mean, like seven different factions and nobody knowing what's happening. You've all got three different fights happening all at once. And how do they, how do they all do that? So I, I've just spent about two hours guessing what will happen over on the other faces. So I just want to see, mm-hmm. I just want to see that chaos because I think it'll be unlike anything we've ever seen. Just massively complicated. Maybe we should have answered one one for a POV because he's got a great mm-hmm. view of everything happening in that scene. Because he's see tall, you know, he can look down and see it. <laughs> he can survey. Also, he's in pain. He's like, my stomach hurt. And Lady Gwen, what, how would you answer this one? Yeah, I was, I was going to tag on to that because the uh, the enraged giant fascinates <laughs> me. I want to know what happens with him. But really, the one I've been most looking forward to is the Brienne and Jamie storyline. Ooh, and, nice. And the Riverland stuff. The ones that I have the most, I wouldn't even say it's trouble predicting, kind of echoing something Nina said with Sansa and Davos. I have an idea. I think I have a pretty good idea of where both those characters are going to go, but the how they get there, especially Davos, sometimes, uh, you know, I can see so many different possible paths. You know, I really think he could show up at, at Castle Black. And then part of me thinks, well, no, wait a minute. He's out there on a ship from White Harbor. So it would make a lot more sense for him to have gone back to White Harbor, not East Watch, you know. To deliver Rickon, of... yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, this just his basic path puzzles me, even though I, I feel like I know where he's going to end up. So, hmm, good point. Yeah. There's a mm-hmm. lot of, yeah, that journey is, is shrouded. You kind of expect him to succeed, but, and not die there, you know, that would be pretty surprising. <laughs> but like, yeah, what's he going to see there? Is there going to be some history? Is there going to be some shipwrecks from some of the other ships that, that we, we had two different examples of ships breaking up on Skagos or Skane during the course of uh, the last book. And for all we know, there'll be some, some survivors or something like that. I don't know how that would necessarily be interesting, but it's just some, one of the many little detailed possibilities that we raised throughout the course of covering that. Mm-hmm. Personally, I would say... Given the lack of information, um, almost every plotline has been advanced a little bit in the Winds of Winter. Like Barristan's got Barristan and Tyrion have gone a little farther. We have a little more on Aaron. That's caught up. What we don't know what's happening is the, the plotline isn't really touched on in A Dance of Dragons at all. Because, like Nina said at the beginning, almost every plotline uh, in A Feast for Crows is 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 given like a little bit more. But the one exception is Sam's plotline. Um, even Sansa's plotline, we get a little more because it's, there's a Winds of Winter chapter. Um, Arya's maybe, there's nothing. And of course, John, there's nothing because that's a true cliffhanger. But of ones that we could reasonably expect a little more, that's a, that, that one I think about a lot. Um, and also, I just think more about, I think more about Arya in general too because I think uh, this, it was more true for Feast, but my answer for which POV I saw differently the most, I think I said Arya for that one because I had new theories about her endgame and how she was going to interact with the Faceless Men going forward. And so reading this book, reading her just two chapters, and uh, so I was really looking for details there to, to try to add to those theories and to look for more examples to back that up. So super excited for Asha's, I mean for Arya, well Asha too, but uh, Arya is who I meant to say. So let's talk about the com- the plot lines coming together, the locations coming together. In the, in the second half, we're, we'll talk about how the thematic connections between these places, which I think is really important as well. Uh, that, that's more character work than the locations themselves. But still, uh, the parallels are there. I would argue that Arya is part of the Northern storyline. Uh, she isn't personally part of it, even though she's bar- she has technically connected with it when she 
spoke with Sam and, and killed Darian. That's something. But it's not her personally, but her identity. The identity of Arya Stark is a huge part of the Northern story. That's, that's undeniable, even though it's Jane Poole and not Arya. The name Arya Stark is, is clearly a big part of it. Bran is somewhat stationary. He was outside of the cave and then he went in it. Uh, his journey has all been there. Vermeer beyond the wall, then he dies. John, interestingly, John doesn't go anywhere the whole book. He goes to the Grove of Nine. <laughs> Otherwise, he's Castle Black the whole time. Melisandre. Yeah. <laughs> Melisandre's East Watch to Castle Black, but she's East Watch off page. She's pretty much Castle Black the whole time for her POV. Asha goes from Deepwood Mott to the Crofters Village. Not exactly a long journey, uh, although it takes forever because of the snow. Theon ends up in the same place. No, it's only place. a couple days by the curse flies. <laughs> so, right. Just a couple days. <laughs> only a couple days. We'll be there quickly in no time. No worries. Uh, and then the Dread Fort, Moat Kaelin, Gold Grass, and Barrington, Winterfell, and the Crofters Village for Theon. That's a lot of different spots, but he ends up you know, with everybody else. Davos goes from the Sisters to White Harbor. <laughs> This is all Stannis stuff, too, because Davos is telling us about Stannis, but he's disconnected from that. Theon is right there with Stannis. Asha's right there with Stannis. So I think that's pretty cool. You've got, that's a lot of POVs. We had 18 POVs, and that's eight of them right there covered here. And by the end of the book, they're a lot closer. Their stories are linked. Like Asha and Theon are literally in the same spot. And so are John and Melisandre. And Varamir's dead. <laughs> so, hmm. Let's, let's talk about connections between these characters and what things that are going on in the Northern Storylines. I'll, I'll rattle off a few general topics and then let you guys kind of run with the, the parts that you would like to speak to or things that, that you have the most to say about. Some things that, uh, that we talked about a lot. Cannibalism, which is a theme of winter and starvation. And it's not really happening a lot, although it is happening some. More so, I'd say it's building up to there to be more of it. Lots of themes of being among the dead. Uh, whether we're thinking about the crypts or whether we're thinking about a literal walking undead or we're thinking about people from the past who impact these POV characters um, even though they're no longer living. Bran, of course, is amidst a lot of skulls. Arya is amidst a lot of dead faces and literal death cult. Varamir experiences the afterlife briefly. So there's all this, there's enormous themes of death all over. Uh, and along with that, we have the human sacrifice, we have winter and cold and death. So that was a lot to say just now. So I'll turn it back over to you guys. Start with Lady Gwen this time. What You obviously are, have said a lot about the North. It's a plot line that you've said is drawing your attention perhaps more than others. So what do you have to say about so much of this coming together and these these overpowering themes that are building as we head towards the winter winter? Well, I mean, what's coming together is, you know, obviously a icy apocalypse <laughs> but, <laughs> well said <laughs> uh you know and whether that's brought about by however it comes about uh you've also got these major battles major death events that are about to happen so that's pretty terrifying then you have this cannibalism that you know you mentioned it's it's mentioned so many times in all the northern point of view storylines that we have to assume that it's it's purposeful it's building up towards something that's going to happen it's going to happen more and more frequently what terrifies um, you more like as a person as a reader does it does it scare you more to think about the walking dead or to think about humans having being so desperate that they have to eat each other well i guess i i don't know you know because <laughs> if they eat each other it occurred to me that something more viscerally gross about the latter that yeah the other, it, it the definitely is 
But from a, an entirely practical point of view, if they eat each other, there are that many viewers on. <laughs> <laughs> eat your enemies. <laughs> Can't have zombies. <laughs> eat them no. eat them. <laughs> now that's a strategy right there. I hadn't thought of that one. <laughs> kind of like the, you know, burning your dead. I guess it's like eat your dead instead. It's just an eminently practical, right? <laughs> Eliana and Ashea are both a big fan of that as well. <laughs> <laughs> We're all coming together on in a place we would not have expected. No, <laughs> Yay, <really>. team cannibalism. <laughs> <laughs> what is uh, who says men are me? I mean, so oh, yes. Says that. What about you, Joe? How do you feel about these creeping, terrifying northern themes? Well, yeah, I think it's quite obvious that the overall theme for the North in this book is is just death. You, that's how you can blanket <laughs> it across the board. And you get that right from the beginning. Varamir, his whole prologue is about a man dying. All <laughs> of the prologues die, but they, normally they don't know it. Whereas his entire chapter is about dying and how he's going to tackle that or avoid it or whatever else. And then it basically just goes from there for the rest of the book. Everything else, uh, really, apart from Davos, and even he is kind of touch and go at certain points, Everyone else is really trying to stay alive the whole time or trying to kill someone else. I think it highlights John in a way. Everyone else is going to war and they want to go and kill someone, whereas John is literally the only person just trying to save people. So he's got this big waterfall of not only everything at Castle Black and the others coming for him, but everyone behind him on the other side is still fighting and still trying to kill each other as well. And he's the only one saying, maybe we should keep as many people alive as possible and it's a bit of an uphill climb for him. Well said. Yeah, that's a good point. That's uh, and that is kind of an overarching theme of of the story, right? That humanity is too busy with itself and its petty squabbles to deal with this problem, and nowhere is that perhaps more present than at the wall itself. The place that's supposed to be the front lines of defense is one of the least organized and focused places in the story right now. It's it's the most chaotic and and up in the air, and perhaps the most unpredictable. One of the things that I was thinking about was when you were kind of mentioning, you know, Arya isn't there, but the name of Arya is there. And one of the things that connects almost every single plotline that happens in the North is how strong the legacy of House Stark is. Um, This is a book that really emphasizes that you don't get to 8,000 years of rulership and not have people be loyal to you. Like this is, this is a, this is not just the ruling dynasty. This is the dynasty. This is the the one that people love, the one that people want to restore. And so this is, you know, every, almost again, every, almost every Northern plotline is, is focusing on the fact that it's the name of the Starks. It's the legacy of House Stark that people want back that people will fight and die for and on a personal level too you know john is obviously not you know taking up arms to restore the starks but at the end of the book he's making a choice precisely because he is a stark in all but name because he does know the starks because he you know he loves the starks he is one of them he can't let someone else have winterfell and have the Starks. it belongs to the starks so you know the the Loyalty to House Stark is something that is very much a focus throughout A Dance with Dragons, and it's only going to get stronger in The Winds of Winter. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, the convergence of Stark heirs is something that we, you and I talked about a little bit. You, you drew my attention more to it and how there's, <laughs> there's just this great uh, undertone. You know, there's this, as Joe pointed out, and, and, and Lady Gwen and, and everybody, this death theme is so huge, but there is this Stark plot like various plot lines Rickon being supported by Davos and Wyman Sansa 
little finger in Aria the Air, which technically isn't really come up that much in this book, but it's certainly happening. Aria isn't really there, but the, her name is being used, as we've said. Rob's will hasn't really come up that much lately, but we've been bringing it up from time to time because we know it's out there and it's probably going to be relevant. And with John being stabbed, that might be the vehicle for him to be out of his vows, et cetera. So you've got, that's four right there. And meanwhile, Bran Stark is still there and he's arguably more ticketed to a crown than anyone else, if, if we can believe the show even a little bit. That's a lot could cause some consternation for us readers later. Let's do our mid-roll here. Let's do some mid-roll shout-outs. And shout-out to Lady Coley of the Island Long. Thank you to our blood riders. Kohol Koei, called Sunpiercer, wielder of a dragonbone bow. Kokavo the Tamer, wielder of the wildfire whip Gehenna. From the depths of Flea Bottom, Lord Ken of Househammer is declared for Queen Carrie, Fire of the North, who recovered Dark Sister from beyond the wall. That's why we need that Mira POV to fill in that extra storyline there. And a laurel of glory in the name of love to Bud of House Beresford, Knight of Tokian and Arbiter of Scotch from Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson. Hope you all are doing well out there. Okay, let's get back to it. Slaver's Bay. Quite a lot more obvious focus on Slaver's Bay in this book. Of the last 18 chapters, something like 10 of them take place in Slaver's Bay. And of course, there's a lot of POVs that start off either there or heading there. Tyrion goes by far the most locations in this book, not even close. Even uh, Theon is probably the next most locations. But he goes to Pentos, the Flatlands, the Rhoyne, several spots along the Rhoyne, Selhoris, Volantis. He sails near Valyria and drifts in the Gulf of Grief. Then he goes to Marine and is in Dasnak's pit. Then he's part of the siege. He goes to the Second Sons. He's just all over the place. He's a regular Lomas Longstrider. Uh, Daenerys, of course, starts in Marine, stays in Marine until the till Daznak's pit, then goes to Dothraki Sea. Barrison basically takes over her POV. He becomes our eyes in Slavers in Marine after she's gone, and Quentin sort of dies right around that same time. And then Victorian, who doesn't arrive yet, is on his way. He arrives basically at the beginning of the Winds of Winter, if the pre-release chapters are accurate or aren't changed later. And with him is, of course, Makoro, who is pretty important, most likely, for Daenerys' future, although I don't know exactly how. Uh, so that's pretty cool. And then to parallel with the, these themes we talked about in the North, we have a lot of the same things. We have a lot of these this underground slash dungeons theme where we're seeing stuff happening below ground. Uh, the dragons being held underground for so long is a big plot line with them being released at the end as sort of a climactic moment. We have the same parallel of being among the dead. Death is everywhere. The stone men uh, with grayscale. We have the pale mare is apocalyptic. We have hellish results at places like Astapor, like almost literal hell. We have themes of the freaking apocalypse, the four horsemen. I mean, what's more, what's his death more than that? Well, along with, you know, plague and famine and the other, whatever the other four horsemen are. <laughs> and so instead of winter, basically the one thing missing from all this is winter. Although we do have a little of that with Daenerys seeing the grass change in the Dithraki Sea. So what I think we're replacing with the main replacement theme for winter is dragons. The heat and fire and dragons is the main replacement theme, whereas most everything else is the same. You even have the starvation theme. You even have cannibalism. You have human sacrifice. All these things are there they're presented differently. They play out differently. 
But if you boil them down to their roots, you can, you can find a lot to tie them together. So similar questions that I asked y'all with regards to the North, what, uh, which of these plot lines or, or POVs are you most looking forward to? And which of these themes stood out to you the most? Um, or just whatever you want to say about the Slaver's Bay plot line. You don't have to directly answer my questions. I just want to hear you guys <laughs> wax intelligently about Slaver's Bay. This time, we'll start with Nina this time. No, I, I have written um, a little bit on this uh, of late. And I think, you know, something that I've, I've come to believe about the Daenerys storyline specifically, um, and it's a little bit carryover, I guess, into the into the Barristan storyline, but specifically with the, the Daenerys storyline in Meereen is that there's really kind of two key takeaways. And that's the one is, you can't make peace with slavers. You just can't do it. You cannot make peace with slavers. It will never work. You cannot, I know, I know you, you brought up multiple times in sort of the, the reread, you can't compromise between no slavery and slavery because any compromise involves some slavery. Yeah. So there's, there's just no making peace. It's something that you just have to destroy. And the other, the other part of that and the part that goes along with that is Daenerys spends the book thinking if I'm going to be Misa, if I'm going to be mother to these people and queen to these people, I can't be the mother of dragons because dragons are destructive. What I think the lesson of Mirian is, no, no, no. In order to be Misa, you have to be mother of dragons. Mm. Those are not, those are two sides of the same coin. Those are both aspects of your personality. You using your dragons to destroy slavery is the best way for you to protect these people. That is the absolute best way. So kind of those two, I think, are very key takeaways, not just for what she does in Meereen, but I think what she's going to do going forward, especially with the others. I think those are very key lessons she needs to learn when she engages with, with the others. And I think it's a great segue to point out the others, because I think, morally speaking, it can be a conundrum for some folk to consider that the correct answer, it's a really hard thing to wrap your, your mind around, that the correct thing is to kill a bunch of people. With the others, it's not hard to wrap your mind around that because they're not people. They're not really, they're not human. So it's like, yeah, destroy all those dead things. Like that's easy to, morally speaking, ethically, it's like, yeah, definitely do that. One of the most, definitely Daenerys destroying slavery is one of the more impassioned topics that we got answers from, emails from, and, and things that weren't questions that I can't just relay them directly. But a, a lot of you wrote in, I want to acknowledge that, to point out that, you know, you've had interesting thoughts on Daenerys, valid thoughts on Daenerys, and if our innocence going to be killed if, Daener if slavery is destroyed. And that's, those are valid concerns. If you want to build on that, either uh, Lady Gwyn, feel free, or if you have a different, you want to take this, uh, this Slaver's Bay conversation in a different direction, go for it. I'd love to hear from you either way. Just want to say it's more of a general thing that what I focus on with these characters, and I, I think probably all of them to some degree, is their their growth as leaders, their, their leadership arcs. Uh, obviously, Daenerys and Barristan and in Tyrion, you, you see, not well, I mean, Tyrion's not really in a position of leadership, but he, <laughs> he has been in one, and he's poised to be in one again. Uh, you definitely see these sort of inner struggles, Victorian to a lesser extent. I mean, he's leading supposedly on behalf of his brother and Quentin, same thing. He's you know leading a group of men on behalf of someone else. But just as a general theme, that's that's something that strikes me about all this. So pretty different from what you guys were talking about. But. So like, would you say it's bad leadership, mostly, or just leadership or grow, growing into leadership? And because you're growing into leadership, that 
necessitate some growing pains. Like few people are mm. expert leaders from the get go. So would you, how would you qualify that? Like this is bad leadership or expected, like maybe you give them some some a little, a little leeway because they don't have experience or Maybe how do you feel about growth that? points? <laughs> They're definitely all, all growing. I mean, even Barristan, who's quite a mature man and has lots of life experience, he's never done and he thinks a lot about how he's not very well suited for this sort of thing that's being expected from him now. None of them are particularly tremendous. <laughs> and, uh, they do all see some growth, which is something that you want to see over yeah. the course of the book. So. <laughs> That's a really good point. It applies. We're actually going to come back to that uh, that topic somewhat uh, because I think it really well applies in other spot, other locations as well. It's a good sort of overarching theme for the books. I'm really glad you brought that up. And Joe, uh, how would you um, discuss Slaver's Bay or summarize your thoughts of Slaver's Bay as much as possible here? Well, I'll, I'll give you an answer in, in two halves. To speak to what you were saying about the similarities to the North and how how... They mirror each other, not just through Daddy and John, but in the actual things that are happening. I think the main difference is in the North, they're fighting against something, or they're starting to fight against something that's inevitable as a force of nature, and that winter has come and, and changed everything. There's still politics involved, but that's it's coming now, it's going to come even faster. Whereas in Marine, although you can argue the dragons are something uncontrollable or something like the Pale Mare, Really, it's about what humanity is willing to do to each other. And you see that there's just an extra layer of cruelty, despite all the cruelty we've already seen in the first four books. It just seems to step up a level. And they're just more willing to go that this is what Skahaz is willing to do, what the Harpies do, like breaking the uh, cellist's fingers before they kill her and stuff like that. Uh, they make an, a sport out of killing, for example. It's just another another step up. And I think you can see how much that wears on someone like, not just Daenerys, but that's who we have access to. And you can see her just looking around and kind of thinking, this is really stupid. Why do people do this? It doesn't make any <laughs> sense. But it's so in- ingrained in the culture and the history that they don't kind of blink an eye. That's just how it's always been. So she comes along and makes this massive, great big change and kind of hits pause for a second. And they start making, like we said, these compromises and start packing together what they call a piece and a, a deal. But even... By the time we're not even at the end of the book, kind of like three quarters of the way through, you can just see it ticking back over a little bit. And you can see these little things start to slip through. But she's been persuaded, well, you've got to let that go, or this can't happen. And you've got to let that go, or this can't happen. And we've got to have the fighting pits, et cetera, et cetera. I think, like I said at the beginning, this slaver space has stuck out more to me this time, the whole marine plot. And it's got this sense of inevitability. It will just happen again. It's just a cycle. And you see it when Daenerys leaves. And Scar has still wants to hurt people, and the harpies still come back. So whatever you do, like Nina was saying, that you can't compromise. And the other part of it is, I was going to apply to what Nina said about so there is no compromise, and you maybe you do have to do bad things. And I think that's what the dragons represent, especially at the beginning, where so Isaiah dies. That's it for Daenerys. Okay, one child has died. That's enough. We have to lock them away. Drogon's already gone, so that can't be helped. And that changes her whole uh, path through the rest of the book. She says, no, a million people, whatever it is, that's not worth one child's death. We can't have that anymore, which is perfectly sane path to take. But I think what we're going to find as we go forward through the series, especially for Daenerys and with these dragons, is that they're going to have to bear the weight of, of having to do bad things to do good things. They're going to have to hurt people. People are going to have to suffer in this situation is a good, great example. 
and not just them, but probably over in King's Landing and probably up at the wall. And it's just going to have to be done if you want the end result. And they're going to have to take on that kind of form of self-sacrifice. They're going to have to stand up and say, yeah, I am willing to do that to my soul and become a slightly evil person to help people. And maybe I'll be remembered as evil and many families will hate me. Examples. I don't think that's just for Daenerys. I think that's probably going to be for John as well and almost anyone in a role of responsibility, especially as winter comes. But I think that's what the dragons represent because we love them. They're cool. They're dragons. We want to read about dragons. But they're also actually quite bad and dangerous and they do do bad things. And it's you have to have kind of both in one. A line that I find myself coming back to a few times in A Dance with Dragons and, and well, not just A Dance with Dragons, but you know, this is currently most relevant that very much relates to what you were just saying, Joe, is, is Corin Halfhand saying that, you know, our honor is, is nothing compared to, you know, lives. Our, our honor is coined to be spent for the mm. realm. And that's very much what you're saying here. It's like, yeah, some people have to step up and sacrifice their souls. They have to be, they have to become traumatized or bear this burden to, to save the world or to save parts of the world. Since it's since George is such a fan of Lord of the Rings, I think of Frodo. Like he, the, the ring screwed him up, right? Like internally, it messed him up. It, it affected his soul, for lack of a better word. And I think we're going to see a lot of, for those characters who survived the series, there's going to be a lot of Frodos. They're going to they have a lot of suffering, a lot of burden to carry through, uh, based on what they've been through, and uh, and they did it for other people. Very good, very good. Let's talk about the South because some of these same things exist there. The South isn't as well developed in this plot, in this book because there's just, it's not as thoroughly addressed. It's like Nina said, it's more of like a little add-on to what was started in Feast in some cases. But still, some of these, thing, these things are there. Ariel Hota and Sunspear, Nina brought up. It's kind of confusing to see what's going on there. I, I totally agree with that. It's hard to perceive how it's going to get from point A to point B. Even if I think we can guess where things will end up in some places, how they get there and who survives is just really impenetrable to me at this point. Uh, Cersei, of course, is set down, but you can really get the sense that she's about to rise again uh, more fiercely, like a phoenix almost, <laughs> with, with Gregor at her side. And then Jamie unites with Brienne. So these, these POVs have all kind of come together. I guess the Hota isn't really t- coming together with them, but clearly the Dornish plot wraps up with the King's Landing plot hugely. And you can see that heading in that direction. Obviously, Arianne is heading to meet with Aegon and John Connington at the beginning of the next book. And their enemy, the one Doran Martell and the Sand Snakes are after, is the Lannisters. So that you can, the, the connections are pretty straightforward. What I'd like to talk about with some of these characters is relating some of these same themes, if you'd like to. But mostly, I'd just like to get your takes on what you thought of the Southern plot lines in general before we move on to a related topic, which will be what was the point narratively of some of these new POVs. And so that's going to include John Connington, but also Barrison and Quentin and things like that. So uh, this time we'll start with Lady Gwen. What do you think about Dorne and King's Landing and Jamie and Brienne and John Connington and all that? Oh boy. How many hours do we have? <laughs> um. <laughs> Let's just uh, all sit back and relax and let Lady Gwen take it, take it for the next two hours. <laughs> well, Ariu Hota, I mean, his presence there is—he's—he's he's really almost like a, like a hinge between feast and and winds. The yeah. Dornish plot, because you got the Dornish plot really started moving in feast. Well, it was you know it was introduced with POVs there in feast, and then uh, there are those. It's set to become a big thing, although obviously it's going to take a backseat to some larger things in winds. And in fact, 
George moved three chapters from of three Dornish POV chapters off from Dance to Winds. And I think he just kept that one Ariota chapter <laughs> in there just to kind of keep the footprint there, to keep that connection, to remind us that this is what's happening, to set up. It's really very much about a setup. You get that sort of family meeting where he gives everybody their marching orders and everybody's going off in a different direction. And it's really, you know, without getting into where they're going to be going in the winds of winter, it is really hard to... to yeah. He's a nice contrast to Barristan too, isn't he? Like these bodyguard, yeah. older, experienced bodyguard figures. Yep. Watching, doing his duty always, you know, he's a little, uh, slightly more wooden than Barristan, but... Uh, <laughs> we don't know as yeah, we don't know nearly as much about him. He's he is a little he, bit. His that last line in his chapter, simple vows for simple men, is really just, yep, you really are kind of simple. And I don't mean that in, negatively. Like that guy just mm-hmm. doesn't isn't very troubled. Yeah, we should get used to him because he's gonna be our point of view for for Dorn and Doran for you know, for the winds of winter. However so long. Yeah. <laughs> like she's gonna be off in, in the Stormlands. So uh, you know, for as long as he lasts, as long as it takes, and I would hazard a guess that we're gonna get anything that we're ever going to learn about Starfall and the Danes is going to come from Mario Hota. So yeah, he's a, he's an important vehicle. Another, you know, another interesting, learn to love him. Yeah. (laughs) Another interesting (laughs) aspect about him uh, tying into Barristan, um, (laughs) as a bodyguard character is, is, uh, with Cersei's plot line and how she acquires this new bodyguard who really is going to change her outlook on life and how she sort of transitions from Jamie, the golden son to this, dark shadow of stone that has been foreshadowed since book one. Nina, what do you think about, how do you, do you have thoughts on how these Southern plot lines tie into the Northern plot lines, or do you just have different thoughts on these things in general? I'd like to hear your takes. Well, you know, I always have thoughts, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one thing I have, I always thoughts. No, I, I think what's interesting is, especially in dance, because, you know, King's Landing is such a, and, and Dorne, you know, but, even more so King's Landing is is such a, a focal point in in Feast. And then it it sort of takes definitely takes a back seat in dance. But as it it kind of becomes, you know, a little bit of a focus toward the end of the book. And what's very clear is that everything is imploding for King's Landing on, <laughs> on every single front. So you've got, you know, and that really is with a lot of these Southern storylines, you have Agan and John Connington who are coming up from the South. You have Arian who is coming up almost certainly to to support Aegon. You have Doran, who's very explicitly, you know, going against the Baratheon Lannister regime. You have the Riverlands, who is, you know, definitely not, (laughs) things are not going well for the Baratheon Lannister regime there. You know, in the North, you have Stannis, who, you know, is going to, it's almost certainly going to win in Winterfell. And then, of course, Daenerys is, you know, in in the East, and and they know about that. So everything on every single front, King's Landing is is really just kind of imploding. And so that really sets up for, it's sort of, a little bit of what we were talking about with Winterfell and that everyone is converging there, but where where Winterfell is the place where everyone, I think, is going to converge to withstand winter and to fight back and mm. to make a stand and live, King's Landing is is the place where everyone's gathering to implode and everything <laughs> going wrong implode. there. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good, yeah. I, I think this you also see the, the topic Lady Gwyn brought up here as well with the idea of, of bad leadership. Like pretty much all these characters we named exhibited, except maybe Hotok, because he's not a leader, uh, exhibited bad leadership. Cersei, okay, we don't even need to get into that. We've been over her, her bad leadership choices ad nauseum. Kevin, similar. Like Kevin, he's not a bad leader, but he's made some 
particularly bad choices amidst some solid choices, Jamie just leaves his army, <laughs> just walks off by himself to go with Brienne, which as as readers, we're, we're all for it. But his commanders are like, what the hell, man? What? You can't do that. <laughs> and Connington, like, this dude is carrying a deadly disease around that he's concealing from everyone. I mean, what kind of leadership is that? <laughs> yeah, so it's you could see, like, I def- that definitely supports your point of things imploding. Either you could see them heading towards implosion for very straightforward reasons, multiple straightforward reasons. Even as though, even as even if those implosions haven't yet happened yet, so that's really good. Um, so we'll get into even more of that as we uh, approach the end. Joe, uh, what do you think about all this business? What what grabs your attention in the South? So much does. I've, uh, I'm just glad they're involved in dance that they were included because I love feast so much. So anything I can get, even these one or two chapters on top of feast storylines, I will take it because I want to find out more about all, all of that. But I think the similarities to what else is going on is not only the convergence and the leadership, like you said, but everywhere is going through a transfer of power at the moment, which is always a really dodgy time. So we already had it in the North and the Boltons have come in and now they might get knocked out. We'll have it on Castle Black, we assume, if John, however long John's out. We've obviously seen it in Marine. Now we've had Cersei's already been taken down by the time we get to these uh, chapters. And what we'd really like is to see the how everything she did is kind of fixed and we don't we don't really get to see it we get we're told about it in the epilogue but we don't get to see it as much as i would like but then we know that's only temporary anyway because we all assume uh Aegon's going to come in and then maybe danny arrives as well so there's always going to be these transfers of power and king's landing is probably the worst place for that even though it's the center of power just because everyone is out for each other so like like you were saying it, it can implode probably quicker than anywhere else because it's just built like matchsticks the structure of it and uh, I think that's probably what we're going to see. And you kind of have these people like Cersei, who's she's finally gained her stick, so to speak. She's been waiting her whole life. to. She'd hoped it was Jamie, and it never really turned out to be. He wouldn't quite do what he was told. <laughs> now she's actually got one, so we'll see how she's going to use that. And it'll probably just probably hasten the implosion, if we're honest. And then, like you say, Jamie's just kind of swirling around in the middle and doing his own thing, which, as you say, we rule four and we really like but eventually you figure he's gonna have to kind of come back off holiday and rejoin the (laughs) the main plot and see what the aftermath is and how is he going to react to that and yeah i'm very very interested i'm very very interested in central west at the moment um by the way joe said you said that it was uh king's landing is like it was built on matchsticks but it's also almost literally built on matchsticks because it does have wildfire (laughs) (laughs) yes there is green matchsticks (laughs) easy easy strike matches that's really well said, Joe. I want to uh, pivot a little bit to what you said that also touches on this leadership theme is it's the idea of who's really in charge, right? Like Danny is the queen of Marine, but so much that she wanted wasn't happening. So much pushback she's getting. As soon as she's gone, his dark tries to take over. It doesn't go very well. Same with Cersei in King's Landing. Who's really in charge? Is it Tyrell's mace is trying to take over? Is it the High Sparrow in the north? John is in charge of the wall, but his officers aren't cooperating, etc. Obviously, killing him is a pretty strong pushback against his leadership. Who's really, you know, the Boltons and Stannis are fighting. So there's a lot of this, a lot of things in flux that way. Hmm. Um, and that, you could, we could call that a theme as well. To just add on to that, what you're saying there is, so John has a thought at some point where he thinks about the Night's Watch as an institution and he thinks like, 
Oh, we could really do with Donald Noy and Jill Mormont and Benjamin Stark, and we haven't got them because they've all died, and we're left with Bow and Marsh, and off we are. And the same thing is happening everywhere else, especially, and you can see it best in someone like King's Landing, where so many people have died or have gone off for other reasons, whether. And if you keep taking off the top, you're left with people who aren't ready, aren't experienced, or good enough to rule. And obviously, that's what people like John Connington and the Golden Company are, are, and Varys are banking on in that you have these people that should not be in the positions they are at the worst possible time, like in Castle Black. Yeah, great point. Yeah, Uh, actually, that is a great pivot to, I'll jump ahead to a question we got, which is um, the rise of powerful women as a theme. uh, It was something raised by Archmaester Rennie here. And I'd say that it's a theme that's starting. I wouldn't say we're there yet because there's a lot of women that are on the rise that maybe haven't fully taken power yet. Sansa being an example. Cersei's going to take more power than she had, probably is my guess. But there are certainly several who have already taken power, uh, like Lady Stoneheart did, but that was that was not this book. But really, I would say that relates to what you were saying, Joe. It's because of so much of it, it relates to people dying. The men mostly go off to war. That's in a patriarchal society who was in charge in the first place. A lot of them don't come back. A lot of them are killed because... Frankly, they take their sons with them. So the sons aren't left behind to rule either. So the women rule, which is gives things a different look. And those women get experience, which is another point you raised, Joe, is that experience of leading is huge. And once you have the experience of leading, once people see you as an authority figure, that can be strong enough to overcome the patriarchal system. And like so a lot of these women will still find themselves in position of leadership because that's what worked out. It worked, it functioned, and they're going to keep going, especially if the Lord of the house was killed or something like that. When the sons are, when there's sons who aren't old enough to go to war, well, they're not old enough to rule either. So this enables that to happen. And it shows that these women are pretty capable, at least some of them. And so let's, let's continue on that theme while we're at it. Lady Gwen, what do you think Looks like you have some great thoughts on this from what I can see in the notes here. Well, I did. I, I wrote, I'm glad you brought it up because I did. I wrote my senior thesis on this topic. Oh, Actually, yeah. I just looked in my desk drawer. I still, I got more. <laughs> well, then, yeah, we're all ears <laughs> even more so. A long time ago, though. <laughs> but but it, it was, uh, it's definitely a very interesting topic about, you know, when you think about society during wartime and, and what happens uh, socially not just you know who won what battle uh, but it, it it all of those things happen you know women have to take up roles that they might not have normally uh, taken up and they may end up having very significant roles in in society in leadership but it doesn't usually lead to a sea change interestingly enough it's more like two or three steps forward and then maybe two you know one or two or two and a half steps back it's incremental change in real in real life. In Westeros, though, who knows? Because, you know, this is a fantasy world. And I'm sort of sure that George is aware of this sort of trend in human history. And maybe he'll make it more, you know, more shiny or, you know, more decisive in his own world. He can do whatever he wants in terms of social history. Mm-hmm. There's certainly going to be plenty of opportunity for female leaders making significant contributions to the narrative uh, going forward, starting here and going forward, much more so than in previous volumes, especially the first three where it was War of the Five Kings. And it was just 
men making decisions and fighting battles um, and, other than other than Catelyn. Yeah, but. I was about to say Catelyn's out there going, stop, stop. And then we get yeah, women like exactly. Lady Smallwood, <laughs> who is my perhaps my favorite example of this of this early concept of a non-POV mm-hmm. character, her, her being both a leader and tender to Arya at the same time. And that was... Um, Nina, what do you think about this subject? Well, one of the things, and I know I've talked to you about this, is just mm-hmm. kind of uh, as an off thing, is one of the things George R. Martin, I think, really, really enjoys writing is writing smart, sassy, confident, older women and widows. Like, he just really enjoys writing that. So you <laughs> see that with people like Barbary Dustin and Widow of the Waterfront and, and, you know, to some extent, Lady Smallwood and um, even Lady Mertens in the Winds of Winter preview chapter. He really just really enjoys, and obviously the Queen of Thorns, obviously enjoys these these sorts of ladies. So to that extent, I think he would always want to have <laughs> powerful ladies, especially if they were older ladies, because he just finds that really fun to write. Because I've focused, and I've said this probably a hundred times now on this stream, because I focus so much on Daenerys, it's something that I really look forward to going forward, is that you know I tend to see a lot of the endgame stuff is really centering on Daenerys. Not even so much in a political context, but almost more in an apocalyptic context. You know, Daenerys really is the one. <laughs> Daenerys is mm-hmm. is kind of the center of it all. And, you know, it's, it's great that in this story, it's the woman. It's this young girl who is the one who can save the world. It's her. She is at the center of it all. She is the one who can, you know, who has the dragons, who has the ability to literally save all of humanity. So it's definitely something that I'm looking forward to. Yeah, that's and that's a neat... Uh, neat kind of not inversion maybe of of the Utaka. He loves to write these sassy, older, powerful women, and Daenerys is is probably not going to become an older woman. Certainly not in the in the timeline of this <laughs> book. But <laughs> that is, uh, yeah, she's maybe the younger version of that in some ways. So, okay, well, let's talk about the point of some of the new POVs. Then that's that was another question we got from several people. There's. The four main POVs that are new, really, I'm not counting Veramir or Kevin since they died. And I think it's a little easier to see what the point of, of their POVs are is to just give us a little more information and to set some things up. Certainly, if you want to weigh in on Kevin or Veramir, go ahead. Let's start with uh, Lady Gwyn, Melisandre, Barristan, Quentin, John Connington. Do you have any important, any notable thoughts on what the purpose of these characters was? I think people most are curious about Quentin. I think he's the one that people say, What's the point of Quentin since he dies and <laughs> the rest of these characters, it's maybe premature to say what the point of them is and if we haven't seen their whole arc. But I'd like to hear any of your thoughts have on, on any of those four. The, the essential thing about both uh, Melisandre Barristan and John Connington is going to be that they're there to, to fill a void when Danny, John, and Tyrion are no longer there to give their point of view. I mean, so John, we presume is maybe going to be out of commission for a bit, and we're going to. So we have to have Melisandre there. Danny's no longer Marine. We had to have Barristan there. John Connington takes over from Tyrion as the point of view to Aegon and that whole that whole storyline. You know, introduced in Tyrion, but he goes off to do his thing. So it had to move to him. Quentin is is an outlier, and the, why do we have Quentin? I mean, it's a very very good question. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm fully qualified to answer that question because <laughs> I, I struggle with that myself. So I will defer to maybe one of my fellows here. Well, this is actually a question I asked right at the beginning when we first got Quentin's um, first chapter. I can't remember which one, which one that's called. But I 
struggled to figure out at the beginning. Or I, I asked the question, if he wasn't in it, what massively changes plot-wise? And, okay, the dragons don't get out, but that you could very, very easily get them out by other means. Still tattered prints. Anyone else has no shortage of a candidate's marine. So I think what George is trying to do narratively is... I can't remember if I said this at the time, but I think Quentin is like a remnant of Feast, where last time he said that Feast was George's like love letter. He kind of let himself go a bit and said, I'm not going to stick to the plot too much. I'm going to actually do what I like. And he's kind of doing the same thing with Quentin, but he's he's slotted him into the plot okay. And what he's doing is writing about uh, adventure and story and the hero, and everyone gets to be the hero in their own story and that kind of thing. And he's doing that because he wants to show that isn't going to happen in this story, which is not news to us. We already know because that's kind of the selling point of Ned's death and that's still very much the USP for Game of Thrones in a lot of ways for many people. Um, So it's not like it's new, but I think he's still, he's trying to say that, that even as we get to the end here, this isn't going to go the way you're hoping it is. Okay, maybe you don't care about Quentin that much. He's completely new to us. Basically, we only have him for four chapters or he does appear in more. But I'm giving this to you as a signal that even as we get forward, even as we get further and further, and you care about these characters way more than you ever cared about Ned because you've had them for longer and they've done more, mm-hmm. uh, they're still not going to um, they're still not going to end up where you like. And there's probably a reason that Quentin ties the chapter before John does because he's saying, "See, I told you, look, I, I warned you right here, one chapter before. These characters will die. That it's not the story you think it is. And watch me prove it. Because here goes John dying now." Hmm. That's, I think John's going to come back, so I don't know how he kind of shoots himself <laughs> in the foot with that message. But. Quite possibly, we've talked about an overarching theme with Daenerys that's already happening and will probably continue to build. It happened with Rob Stark as well. Um, it's happening more so with Daenerys, is that there's a lot of rumor about her and the vast majority of it is false. The whole, like, she feeds her dragon's children. And this is, the death of Quentin is already uh, shaping up if you look at the way Gareth Drinkwater talks about it immediately afterwards, <laughs> there's a lot of bitterness over this. There's a lot of blaming of Daenerys, which is kind of ridiculous because even Garrus knows that Daenerys wasn't even there. <laughs> like she, like I, we didn't. Daenerys didn't tell you to go into the dragons' cave there and and try to steal them. That wasn't smart. How are you going to blame her for that? That doesn't matter. The fact that it's inf- unfair to blame her, we can we can all recognize that. But that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Daenerys' enemies are going to love to spin whatever they can about her. Anything they can sink their teeth into that makes her look worse, that makes her look evil, they're going to do that. And especially if Varys and Danny end up on opposite sides of things. Right, right now, I think that's tentative, the way that's going to go. But I think eventually mm-hmm. it's not going to go well. And Varys is a master of this sort of thing, of driving wedges between allies. That's, his, that's what Barristan thinks about and. His last chapter of Barris's job was dividing the crown's enemies. And then in the prologue or in the epilogue, that's exactly what we see him doing by killing Kevin. So I think that a very strong oncoming theme is, is people having false information about Daenerys. And I think that could be a very big part of this is, is her being blamed for Quentin's death and Dornish anger towards that. Mm. Um, well, I was just, yeah, I was going to really agree hard with you because... One of the things we've talked about this a lot in our recent episodes, looking at Dorne and the Stormlands, uh, as far as what the perception of Danny will be and how Quentin will play such a huge role in that. You've got to look ahead a bit in the Ariane chapters. She thinks at great length uh, that perhaps Danny actually 
was behind Viserys's death. Yeah, she, that, she considered that she didn't you know. want to be, you know, stuck living in a tent for the rest of her life. And so she sort of, it was instrumental in having her brother murdered. And of course, Danny <laughs> could take the blame for Drogo's death. Yeah, um, that's uh, true. She literally did kill him. So, you know, there are all these deaths that are going to be following her to Westeros. And I and we couldn't agree more that um, that is probably a big part of Quentin's purpose. After all, I mean, yeah. look what they said about Rob Stark. Like, yeah, is it, is it your... When Davos is like, wait, are you saying that Rob Stark yeah. turned into a direwolf and ate? Right. You know, it's like, they're like, yeah, that's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> so if people can get away with that story, I mean, damn, what can they say about Daenerys? It's like, they're going to like... Look at every man she comes in contact with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no one can satisfy her. <laughs> Just oh, if Dario man. dies, look out, you know. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. Right? We were talking about POVs, and I think you had mentioned Barristan is sort of this, what's the point of kind of this new POV? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I, I very strongly believe in, you know, more and more, the more I reread, the more I believe this, is, you know, Barristan, his, I like his arc, even though it's a short arc in Dance with Dragons, I like his arc because it, it explores this question of what does it mean to be a Kingsguard? What does it mean to to serve a king? And it's a question that I think George R. Martin does a good job in a very short amount of chapters, setting up this question, having him face the challenge, answering the challenge, and then sort of resolving from there of taking this character who is the epitome of the Kingsguard. He is what people think of when they think of the Kingsguard and having him struggle with the question of does being a Kingsguard mean being loyal to the person whose crown, whose head has the crown on it or who is in the office or being loyal to the office itself, what what does that mean? You know, it's not, it's not easy. So, yeah. and putting him in a position where he never felt he could stand up to Eris, even though Eris was a tyrant and he thought Rhaegar was a better king. He never felt that he could stand up to Robert, even though he didn't believe that Robert was the rightful king. Mm. So one, two, three, now he actually does. And he does what he never thought he could do. He deposes who he thinks is an unlawful king in the name of who he thinks is a lawful queen. So I really like that storyline. I like that even in a very short amount of chapters, we get a nice thematic punch there. So Yeah, well said. That's a really good point. Yeah, I'm, I'm really eager to see where Barrison's story goes. He's, he's not just for that, for what you said, but because he's, as we've said a few times during, he's this wonderful opportunity to, to give us an insight into things that happened 40 years ago or 30 years ago or 20 years ago. Uh, he could tell us about Arthur Dane or Rhaegar, more about Ares. There's just so many things. But another character he can really speak to is Tywin. So yeah, uh, let's talk. Let's let's go a little farther with that. Let's talk about some overall themes here. Not all these require a response. I just wanted to over to kind of touch on these and set a few things up. We I want to get deeper into this bad leadership theme. Sometimes the bad leadership theme involves good intentions. Obviously, Danny and John and a lot of these characters have very good intentions. It doesn't always, obviously. Like someone like Cersei doesn't really have good intentions with her rulership. She's more about herself. John Connington's doing it for Rhaegar's son, but uh, it's debatable, right? It kind of like he's kind of doing it for himself. Like that's a philosophical question, whether who he's really doing it for. So a question is, so that brings us to a theme of justice versus revenge with the slavers. Is it correct to kill them all? Is that justice or is that a form of revenge? I, you know, that's a question for, for you all to think about on your own. Does Danny even truly have a right to the Iron Throne? Uh, her brother imparted her with that sense of justice, but is that really what it is? Is it really justice for her to take the throne back? Same goes for Stannis. 
So justice versus duty is a theme. And, I, and you touched on this, you know, with talking about Barrison. That's a huge thought process with him. And it's something that's recurred with so many of these different characters that have a strong sense of duty. Ario Hota counts for that, but more so Jamie, Ned Stark, John. Like duty, huge theme there. And that, of course, comes with, it's the main revenge and justice and duty kind of overlap each other. And it's kind of hard to see where one begins and the other ends. And another topic that comes up a lot here where it's a more of a, an opposite or at least something that doesn't work together is duty versus love. And that's a theme we've seen since the very beginning with Maester Eamon very wisely bringing that up. And we've seen that play out countless times. Here, it seems to be a little different because with John, it's not about, it's a different kind of love. It's not romantic love. It's familial love. And that, in a sense, brings it right back to duty because Westerosi and in the real world, it's definitely a cultural value to have a duty towards your family. So love and duty kind of do overlap when it becomes a family thing, uh, less so when it's romantic. And then we come back to Tywin. I think it's really interesting how you can take almost every POV, maybe the exception is like Veramir, and draw a line to Tywin's influence on this character, and it's very strong. It's obvious with Tyrion, Cersei, Jaime, Kevin. It's obvious with the ravaging of the Riverlands, the Red Wedding, the sack of King's Landing, which even applies to little characters like Kem, who Tyrion meets amidst the Second Sons, just to remind us that Tywin's legacy is everywhere. Barristan, even, of course, with Duskendale and Ares. And, of course, the killing of the Targaryen Martell princelings was the whole launched Dorne's revenge plot and Connington's plots. So this leadership theme isn't just about the present. It's about the past and how it bleeds into these characters. But perhaps no one more than Tywin is that, is that character. Joe, we'll start with you. Leadership. Let's talk, talk about leadership, duty, justice, all these things and how that's a, a major topic of this book. Well, I think Duty is one of the real, real top themes of the book, just just for the strength of Danny and John being such large, large parts of it, and that being their that's their job in this book is to perform a duty. You want your personal wants and everything else. You have to kill the boy. You have to put your dragons away. You're supposed to have this job, and you're supposed to get on with it. And I think what we see, you can almost link it back to Quentin in a way, because there are different types of duty, or there are different sources of why you're doing it. So for those two, they're doing because they've got these great big important jobs. So they're, they're taking care of thousands of people or trying to save the world, whatever it is. Whereas someone like Quentin, his duty to go and get Daenerys, he's he's not doing it because he's super invested in revenge on the Lannisters. He really very rarely thinks about that at all. He's not like the Sand Snakes. He's not like Duran. He's not powered by that motivation, at least not as much as the others. He's doing his duty because his dad told him to, essentially. And he's like, this is this is my thing. And if I go back, dad will be upset. So it's in no way comparable to what else is going on in the book. And maybe that's why he can't come through at the finish line because he's not in it as much as these other ones. Whereas these other people, they are really, really invested like a John and he's willing to kill the boy and send away all his friends and put himself like, it's, it's almost a form of self-harm with both John and Daenerys. They're really willing to make their lives worse because they think, the end goal will be achieved faster. This is what you're supposed to do. And then at the end, you get to see the cracks of the cost of that. And you, you can't actually live that way. And that's, that's something people have said about just the nature of the Kingsguard or the Night's Watch. You can't give everything that is to be human up and still expect to function. And John and Danny are finding that out. And especially 
I think it's probably more pronounced in John at the end because he has the literal decision of I can do what I'm supposed to or I could do what I really want. He chooses one of them and he tries to sell it as I'm not breaking any rules. If I, if I don't ask anyone else, then it's all fine. When really we all know he knows that's not on because that was his very first scene in the series. He was there with Bran. He was there with Ned. It was justice. Justice, justice. And so you can ask yes. the question then. So let's say if Ned was still Warden of the North and John leaves the wall, even as Lord Commander, to go and do whatever he wants, then Ned would be honor-bound to go and deal with him. And there'd be no question about that. That's just the rules. Kind of goes back to what I said at the very, very beginning in terms of you know focusing on John and Danny because they have kind of the most explicit and longest discussions in terms of leadership in, mm-hmm. in the whole book. And they both struggle with this question of, you know, how to rule, but for very different reasons. And they both, you know, kind of, to some extent, walk away from it at the end. But again, for very different, different reasons. Um, yes. What Daenerys comes to is that Meereen isn't isn't workable for her because it's not her end goal. She's she's coming to realize that this is a place she can't stay. She cannot make work because she was never meant to be here. John realizes or, or comes to a belief at the end the entire book he struggles with being a Lord Commander versus being a son of Ned Stark. And he increasingly makes decisions that are as much, if not more, the son of Ned Stark than they are <laughs> the Lord Commander of Night's Watch. And so at the end, when you know he's he's being faced with this question of are you going to continue to be the leader of the Night's Watch or not? He says no. He says no. This is I'm I'm walking away from it. I'm going to, I'm gonna break my vows and I'm gonna go and be a Stark in all but name again, because that's what matters to me more. So again, it's just kind of an interesting question in terms of, you know, these are both leaders of political institutions and they both do to some extent walk away, but for very different reasons and different different motivations on, on both of them. And they're both facing just completely unprecedented challenges <laughs> with yeah. without much experience. I think that's so like As super teenagers. important. Yeah, they're teenagers, yeah. right. They're freaking <laughs> teenagers. Uh, John at least had a little bit of of upbringing towards leadership. Danny didn't even have that, really. (laughs) She's just completely winging it. Now, Lady Gwen, let's hear from you on this. This legacy of Tywin that I think you're right looms so hugely over the plot at this point. And you specifically have all the Lannisters uh, that are struggling with it. Jaime has outright rejected it. Cersei is embracing it. Tyrion is trying to escape it, but arguably is the one who's most like Tywin. So, (laughs) you know, whether or not he's going to be able to is up for debate. And you've got all these other plot threads like you identified that are related to Tywin. And the one that interests me very specifically is John Connington because of that conversation he has with Blackheart in the Golden Company or that he remembers, obviously we don't see that on page. You, you see it in his memories where he's, as he always does, he's running the Battle of the Bells in a loop on his head ever since the moment it happened. I think that's that's his particular psyche. <laughs> and Blackheart tells him that he says Tywin Lannister wouldn't have done anything more. And Blackheart says, no, you're wrong. Tywin Lannister would have burned the whole town down and killed everybody. And that would have been the end of Robert Baratheon. <laughs> so as he's played this through his head so many times over the years, I think that this is going to have a huge impact on things that John Connington is willing to do in order to achieve his goals in the winds of winter. So the legacy of Tywin will continue to 
play out. And it's interesting that it's also connect, connected with the reason why he's doing what he's doing. So it doesn't, it doesn't seem like, let me just get a quick answer from all of you. Doesn't it seem like the guy who's going to burn King's Landing is more likely him than Danny or that Danny, maybe Danny gets blamed for it or maybe it's an accident. But the guy who seems like is being foreshadowed to intentionally want to burn a city is him, right? He's the that, guy. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Thematically, uh, that's that's definitely, you know, it's, there's more of it there. I have I have thoughts, but I uh, <laughs> get more into a Winds of Winter discussion. So. Yeah, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it seems like that was like maybe what the show is sort of getting at with the bells thing. It's like Danny's the bells things with her. They they're there's they're there, but it's mostly like the Thraki bells of victory. It's John is the one who obsesses over what that sound really means. Danny, it's just like a kind of in the background for her. Anyway, mm -hmm. uh, Joe, did you have anything to add to that real quick? No, only, only that you can probably say the same about Tyrion as well. So if he ends up next to Daenerys and she has that uh, kind of force beside her because he's, well, you can always tie it back to your question on leadership where he he's the one who had it before and then spends this whole book on kind of a, a curved U and is just about getting to maybe where he'll get it again. So what's he going to do with it once he does again? How does his revenge story and what mindset is he in? And so many questions you could answer that yeah he could you could foresee it you could see it happen so here's a related question that i think a lot of us didn't even consider it's something that might not matter it may not come up but if it does it could be particularly interesting it's a question from julia rust uh, hello from sweden what do you think john cunnington will think when slash if he finds out about john snow's parentage and that eddard stark hit him probably to protect him from robert all those years that's a that's a really good question. I think Nina, you have the simplest answer here, which I think might be the way it goes. We'll start with that. Yeah, I don't I don't think John Connington finds out. I in fact, I don't think John Connington is long for this world, period. Yeah. So I don't think that John Connington finds out a lot of things. No, and part of that is I kind of expect Arian to take over as a POV on Agen. Um just I just I don't really see you know, having kind of two POVs on the same non-POV character. So I, I kind of see John Connington dying sooner rather than later. So no, I don't think John Connington ever finds out about Jon Snow. I don't even know that we get more explicit about John Connington finding about, <laughs> about Aegon. So that's that's kind of where I am. Cool. Okay. What do you think, uh, Lady Gwen? Well, <clears throat> I definitely think he sticks around long enough to find out about Aegon. That has got to be the sort of the peak of his arc, you know, the, where he gets this huge revelation and then that's his just his implosion point. But thematically, this is just a huge irony because Connington's been protecting and raising this probably fake kid all these years while Ned Stark, who's one of the primary victors of Battle of the Bells, which is the thing that has haunted him for all these years, is protecting Rhaegar's real actual son and if he were to find this out it would be absolutely devastating but you know i don't think there's necessarily banged on i think there's only the slimmest of chances that he ever finds out about john however like i said i, I think that the Aegon reveal is going to be the thing that is his ultimate it's interesting for sure joe what do you think well, I have to admit, I never even kind of connected the dots. I never even thought about John being of any of any importance to John Connington. So this is why I don't try and guess things because people are much smarter than me can do it for me. But now that it's been brought to my attention, I, 
I do think if George wants to be particularly really, really cruel just because he can, then the kind of cruelest thing he could do is tell John Connington about John's existence, but through uh, not with all the right details. So he says, oh, Rhaegar did have a son. He survived and he's called John. And maybe John Connington thinks, oh, the guy I had this unrequited love with, oh, maybe he did feel something back for me because he had this hidden son and he called him John. And then someone says, no, not you. John Aaron, and uh, and that's probably what sends him <laughs> off the edge because you would, wouldn't you? That's brilliant. <laughs> really twist the knife. <laughs> his brain might be addled by grayscale by the time this happens, too. So, like, who knows how his mind's even going to work? Because, <laughs> like, that's another whole like twist of this whole thing is like stone men go nuts, right? Their brain is is impacted. So, like, is that part of what's going to happen with Coddington too? I don't know. It's a whole nother, whole nother ball of wax to consider. Here's a few other questions from folks. Some of these were, don't require an answer. They're just really good observations that are for, for us to consider or for you, for you all to consider as well. Micah Clark, hey there, friend, says, Dance has a lot of focus on ruling and loyalty, especially for John and Danny and how they both hate it now that they're in it. A lot of focus on how their subordinates view them. Good point. And that's part of why I like that early question we tackled, which was, what other POVs could help fill some of this out. And that's, that's a great, that made me think of this with the, the Irijiki POV idea, how they view Daenerys would be something that we, we don't have a lot of. Like, how do people close to Daenerys view her? And that was a, a, a good, uh, one of the good things to come from this episode is I hadn't really thought about that very much. Guilty Undertaker says, it's too bad that we couldn't get John, Cersei, and Danny in one book. Three very different yet complimentary reflections on ruling. Yeah, that is uh, that is that's a good point. I think I suppose by the time the next book rolls around, it'll be uh, it won't be le- it'll be less direct ruling and administration and more battles and war to start off with, and then who knows after that. Now, here's one that's a question I do want to get answers from you all on. Two different people, at least two different people, Guinevere Greenstones and Margot from Discord, asked, "What are our thoughts on the title of this book as it pertains to the story?" I'll start off with a quick comment. I think it's certainly on the surface a little misleading, but not. Some people think of the, the Civil Warrior Dance with Dragons, which maybe there's some foreshadowing for that. Obviously, Danny and Aegon don't come into direct conflict, at least not yet. But there's perhaps it has more strength thematically, even though we do actually get to see the dragons in action for the first time ever, unless you count the, the freeing of the Unsullied, which eh, maybe you could count that. But this is a lot more intense um, and a lot more directed towards our POVs. So this time we'll start with Lady Gwen. Your notes are first here in the document, so why not start with you? Well, there's this very basic thing that it comes up in a Barristan chapter regarding Quentin. He's watching burned Quentin dying in Danny's bed, and he thinks not all men are meant to dance with dragons. It's in the Queen's Hands chapter. But, you know, obviously, it's just George doing that thing where he said the name. This book is a buildup to the second dance, which you referred to. All the buildup for Danny and Aegon eventually meeting is here, and probably originally possibly originally the book was meant to have more even more of that stuff in it and uh yeah this sort of dragony action that the rise of the dragony action is is such a big part of this with quentin and uh obviously with drogon coming back and instrumental in danny's disappearance right on lady uh joe i almost called you lady joe lady but jo. you're sir buckley not oh that's fine by me <laughs> Yeah, no, like my wife is Lady Buckley. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be honest, I kind of have got some some of the answers from the other questions in this, but I'll kind of give the quick version. Basically, I think 
the the point of the title is it, you mess with fire, you get burned, basically. Um, and you can look at that on a, a micro level. We've already said it's a book of consequence and comeuppance. And on the small level, that might be Cersei, that might be Fionn. But as we said right back at the beginning, you can look at it as society-wide as well, because everyone's kind of kind of been baiting at war and just kind of seeing how far you can push things, whether that's a Bruce Bolton or the whole city of Marine. And eventually it is all going to collapse and come back on you, which it is. This the, the end of this book is basically just everyone flipping the table all at once and we're going to have absolute chaos on the other side. Uh, or you can take the more literal in, like we said, the actual dragons, they are good, but they're bad. As much as we love them, they're going to bring a lot of... You have to take uh, both at once, I suppose. Okay, yeah. Well said. Uh, Nina, what do you think? To kind of go off of, of both of those points, which are, which are definitely true, this is a book uh, of the rise of draconic power, which is both literal and... Um, sort of figurative in terms of, of the rise of these two Targaryen or um, purporting to be, in the case of Aegon, Targaryen pretenders. They are both actively taking leadership roles and are actively asserting themselves as royals. So you get this rise of this is when the dragons are, are actually coming back. Um, and then, of course, literally, some of the dragons haven't been a force in the, you know, Clash of Kings and Storm Swords, but they're even more of a force now. This is a force that you can actually ride this and they're actually a danger to people and they, you know, will actually kill and eat people. So, you know, the, this is when the dragons become less of a sort of a wonder of the world and more of an actual tool that can, that can be used and used in war and, and used going forward. Nice. Very well said. Um, now here's a tough question. A dance of dragons features <laughs> highs and lows emotionally. Um, what one moment or moments did you find the most perhaps poignant, affecting, or whatever word synonym for something that really struck a chord deep within you that that garnered a reaction? Maybe you had to set the book down for a minute or it stuck with you. <laughs> and whether it's something that that is new to this reread or something that's just consistent every time you read it. Lady Gwen, what about you? I think it's gonna have to be Theon rescuing Jane and then his reunion with Asha, with his sister Asha. Nice. Uh, And I think I'm going to reach back to when I joined you for the uh, wrap up for Storm of Swords. And I think I chose my most poignant moment was the reunion of Arya and and Harwin. Oh. So obviously, uh, reunions are my thing. We, we should <laughs> really be having more of those in future books, too. Some yes. really big ones, right? Look forward to them. <laughs> we don't get many, though, so far. Uh, yeah. Nina, looks like you have a different answer here. What do, what do you think? Poignant probably isn't the right word here, but definitely emotional is, you know, reading Cersei's two chapters in, in this book, mm. especially, you know, especially Cersei 1, where Cersei's quite literally being tortured. And this is, yeah. you know, it's it's not... It's not subtle. It's she is literally being woken up multiple times every mm. single night and demanding answers. She is literally being left without sufficient food and drink. She is literally being left almost naked in the cold. That's torture. That is unquestionably torture. And you know, she's put through a specifically sexualized torture in in her second chapter. And it's not that Cersei is an innocent person. Cersei deserves, you know, some kind of justice for various things, but she doesn't you know, what she is being punished for is sex, plain and simple. And it's sex that Westeros considers consensual. It's it's sex that happened 
uh, not when Cersei was married. It's it's the least controversial thing that Cersei has done of, of anything. Besides besides the Lancel part, which is controversial for reasons that Westeros doesn't recognize as controversial. Yeah. But mm-hmm. no, it's it's just it's very sad to see even someone who has done as many villainous things as Cersei has really be tortured and really punished in in a horrible, horrible way. Well said, well said. And Joe. Well, firstly, I'd only say I think Nina hit it on the head there, especially with Cersei, because she is such a, a villain. And that uh, that specific comeuppance or, or torture it, it is really effective in making us say, oh, no, we didn't mean this. Like, comeuppance, yes, but not, not this one. This is far too far, George. And it's specifically because she's being punished for what their world has made her. They put her in that pigeonhole, and now they're saying, Oh, we don't actually like that. You've done it too much. Now we're going to punish you for it. But um, as for my answer, actually, I don't think I've ever been as angry reading anything in my whole life as I was reading the whimper line when Jane whimpers to Theon. Mm. And in my mind, I, I don't stop swearing at Peter Baelish. I just continue that every day when I wake up and every night when I go to sleep. I'm still swearing in my mind at Peter Baelish. <laughs> um, but that's a, bit of a, that's a bit of a downer. I know my memory is failing me because, as you say, there's so many moments in this book where you do have to put it down and be sort of, what, what a line, what a moment. And they'll all come to me as soon as we log off. But the <laughs> one that sticks out as the positive, I think, is probably one of the smaller ones. And it's in Quentin Freer, forget the name again, that um, when Jairus is trying to persuade him not to do this thing, and he says that men's lives have meanings, not their deaths. And mm. you could you could just make that massive and slap it down over the whole series and go, listen to <laughs> this guy, everybody. Stop marching to your deaths and trying to be a song. Just <laughs> stay at home and be alive instead. Everyone would be much better. Uh, that's a really good take. And I'm glad you mentioned songs because I, I accidentally skipped this portion of the notes and I wanted to point out that that's a... So we talk about what's, what's there. We talk about what, what we see a lot of. But sometimes what we don't talk about is what's missing. What was there and what isn't anymore. And something that, we, that came up a lot in the earlier books was songs. So the, the theme of songs and how songs either were echoing in someone's head, like Tyrion thinking of the song that reminds him of Tysha, or lots of other songs like The Bear and the Maiden Fair, which you know is kind of a goofy song, but it has thematic resonance even despite that and also foreshadowing powers. But uh, there's just very little song in A Dance with Dragons. There's very little singing. But what we do have is people living out some of these songs. Like, we have a very real-life Bale the Bard situation playing out at Winterfell, and we have a very real, uh, potentially very real, Danny Flint situation playing out uh, at the Citadel and arguably elsewhere. That's not an answer to this question about emotional resonance, but I wanted to jump on that since Joe brought it up before I give my answer, which is going to be in line with a lot of y'alls. I am also going to cite Theon, but a different point in Theon's arc. Not that the ones you guys didn't mention are good. I just didn't want to be repetitive. But Theon, when he's confessing to the tree, when he's confessing his guilt, when he finally like admits these things he did wrong and that he admits that the Starks were his his fa- the only family he ever knew and it all just comes out. He starts weeping. It's that gets me. And it's interesting that we, so three of us named Theon slash Jane. I mean, Joe, you really named Jane more than Theon. It was just in Theon's chapter. But to me, what's interesting, particularly interesting about this as well is that, especially because Nina mentioned Cersei, is that these are cat characters that, Jane aside, obviously, are not good guys, although uh, we still see them as human beings. Theon maybe is coming around a bit. But 
John and Danny are just so tough. They don't break down. Like if Danny were to just break down weeping and think about all these horrible things that had happened to her, we'd probably, we might have named her. But she's just so strong. Like she doesn't break down. She's just like, oh, I'm gonna keep going. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm out here by myself on the Dothraki Sea with nothing. I'm not panicked, whatever, you know? And John is just like, duty, I'm powering through this. He doesn't sit there and go, oh man, woe is me. What you made me think of when when you said that is even to some lesser extent, not not as much as Theon and Cersei, because we obviously didn't get a POV from her, but even to a lesser extent, you know, the first appearance of Jane in a Game of Thrones, she's she's kind of being a childhood bully to Arya. You know, he's she's the That's one who true. calls her Arya Arya horse face. She's she's the one, and obviously it's not she's not torturing her. Yeah. It is it is something that makes young Arya uncomfortable, and it's something that that does hurt her. That's so it, it's easy to see Jade in that context as sort of a childhood bully um, and someone that hurts our our favorite Arya. So to see her go through real horror too is her own, you know, in, in her own way. Yeah, good point. Okay, a few more questions here. Missy Castle Dreams. This is a little bit more of a prediction question. Uh, the question is, I subscribe to her becoming the great Khaleesi, but how? Uh, will we have it be like a walking out of fire moment or will, you know, kind of like the show or she thinks the Drogon will be more involved in this. And I, I agree. So Lady Gwen, start with you. Okay. Um, I'm going to say, I think that Drogon is going to leave her. He's shown that he's not very tame. So where she is right now, she's met these Tothraki, she's got Drogon by her side, but I don't think he's going to stick around. I think she's going to be taken back to Vase Dothrak. Because from a narrative perspective to me, and this would be in keeping with George's style, it makes a lot of sense for her to be completely disempowered. And you might think she is now, but she's got a ways to go before she really reaches rock bottom. Maybe mm. even fall back into slavery. It always get worse. <laughs> uh, yeah, she's been such a huge theme in her life. So uh, before she experiences, you know, this sort of triumph. And in support of this, I want to tell you guys about something that Kurt Vonnegut talked about a lot. Um, if you Google Kurt Vonnegut, The Shapes of Stories, you can see a lovely video of him. He's very, very funny and entertaining, about five minutes long, talking about showing the shapes of stories on Blackboard. And one of them is man in the hole. Basically, you got a man. doesn't have to be a man. could be a woman. could be whatever character you have. A dragon. A dragon. <laughs> they start out. Man starts here, goes way down to the bottom, comes back up and ends higher than where he started. Uh, Vonnegut says most of our stories can be boiled down to one of three different shapes and that's that's one of the main shapes of stories so that's a story that we all love because you know we love to see people pull themselves up by their bootstraps after they've reached rock bottom right I mean yeah it's a it's a classic narrative structure so I I think Danny has a ways to go before she hits the bottom it's, and it's, that that's yeah. part of what's coming for her. It's comforting as humans to know that if you see someone reach rock bottom and then climb back out of it, you know, it maybe it gives you a sense that if you ever were to hit rock bottom that you could climb out of it. Maybe that's part of yeah. what maybe that's part of what we like about it, is it makes us all mm -hmm. feel more comfortable with ourselves. Where where I differ is that I think that Danny is going to take on Jack immediately. And I think that because she's it's very clearly set up like very much emphasized in that last chapter. I remember Jacko and I remember that he would participated in the gang rape and murder of Aroa and I really hate him for it. Yeah. Um, justifiably. So <laughs> now it's a little weird because it does leave off kind of 
it's not clear whether Danny recognizes that it's Jacko or because the story just says that's how Cal Jacko found her. So it's not clear whether Danny is the one who is recognizing or the story is just pointing out that it is. But in any event, I think she's going to realize right away. Uh, and I think she's going to say, oh, hey, remember me. I'm going to do that thing that I promised to do to you five books ago, which is kill you for, for raping and murdering Aroa. And then I think what she's going to do is kind of tell his followers, listen, you gather everyone. I'm the leader now. I'm going to take over all of you. Go to Vans Dothrak. And, you know, this is the other thing that I kind of think of. You know, Dothraki are impressed by two things, and that's strength and riding ability. There is nothing stronger or more impressive from a riding standpoint than riding a dragon. Yeah, that's so, kind of impressive. Yeah, they're gonna, um, there's going to be so some I, converts I, from that, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that there's going to be a sort of a sense of overall, especially if Danny, you know, burns Jacko. And again, I'm not going to feel that bad because he is a, a, a rapist and slaver, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I guess the question is, yeah, she could just, it, it could be a little bit like Brienne's feast ending where she screamed a word, whereas Daenerys could just, like, the next thing out of her mouth could be Dracarys, and then like, if Lady Gwyn's right, Drogon flies away, and she's like, um, I said Dracarys, <laughs> not uh, fly away. <laughs> but if if not, maybe it's just I'll instant come back burning. eventually. Yeah, yeah, I think we all expect him to either stay or come back later. What about you, yeah. Joe? What do you think here? Well, I'm kind of split right down the middle. I, I should say that I never really give that much thought to Danny and based off rec. I kind of veer more back to Marine, and we know she's going to get back there anyway. But um, for this scene, I know what I want. I just don't know if that's going to happen or not. What I want is for this last part at the end of her last chapter where she does jump on Drogon again. I want that to be the, the unclicking moment where they've, they've figured it out and now he does what she wants. But I also wanted that back in Daznak Pit and it didn't happen. So there's nothing to say it will happen this time. Maybe it is just this thing that's going to take ages or maybe it even never really works. Maybe he's just too wild or whatever. So I could easily see what Lady Gwyn's saying. I can easily see what Nina's saying. The one that sticks out to me, because I actually forgot that this was so different to what we saw in the show. I forgot that it's just like they kind of meet. But the line that sticks out is that Danny went and stood by her dragon. That's just one short, sharp sentence. Mm. So I like to think that that's George saying, like, that's her making the physical choice, right? We've, had, we've just had this chapter of me weighing everything up and looking back to go forward and all this stuff. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be the dragon. And watch, I'll show you by using this dragon or demonstrating with this dragon. So like Nina says, I really think, yeah, Dothraki will just kind of bow to that sense of strength, whether it is right here or maybe it's later or when Drogon comes back. It's going to happen anyway. So we're going to wind up in the same spot. Cool. Yeah, I do think we all, we all do. So basically, to summarize, we... Missy Castle dreams. I think we all sounds like all five of us, including her, agree that Danny is going to become this great. It's going to dominate somehow. The details. We'll just wait and see. I don't. My own take is too similar to y'all's to bother with. So we'll just move on. <laughs> Here's an interesting one from Randy B seventy four. Just a few questions left. Um, unfortunately, I'm not going to get to all the questions. Uh, we <sighs> just have too many good ones, and and we don't want to give short quick answers. We want to give thorough answers. So any questions that you all sent that didn't get answered, we will find a time to circle back to them one way or another, even if it's just me emailing you answers directly. Let's see. Randy B's question is, Theon thinks he's being watched from the children's tower as he approaches it, but we find out later no one is in sign. Uh, I have a few quick takes on this. I really like y'all's answers here. So I'm going to get to that quickly. I think his guilt is maybe part of it. Being watched is something that is part of him, uh, part of his uh, on his mind a lot. Like he he thinks about how he's viewed. 
But uh, it also may be foreshadowing what seems to be happening with him throughout the rest of the book, which is Bran is kind of watching him, uh, especially at the end um, with Asha's uh, in the in Theon's Winds of Winter chapter where it, it, Asha uh, is talking to Stannis and they hear about that the ravens are croaking and and one of the northerners says the gods are watching from their aisle. And so it seems like Bran is quite possibly just paying attention so that maybe Theon feels like he's being watched when he's at the tree also. Um, but also there's just a general rise of mysticism in the in the books that starts off pretty mild. You get this big kickoff with the others and then it just dies off for a while and then it's just slowly been creeping up. And I think that maybe is part of it from y'all. Uh, Lady Gwen, what do you think? I think it's the Kranich men up there. You know, their their presence is noted in that chapter. They're yeah. obviously retaking the moat on the bog some devils. Levels. Their bog devils are around. Theon's aware that they're there, but unseen. So I, I think, although we later learned that the Ironborn who were there in the Children's Tower are all dead because they were uh, a cannibalism again. They were eating their dead fellows and they got killed. By, Can't be um, flayed by the Boltons if you eat each other. <laughs> I mean, maybe they should have all, you know. I don't know, but uh, I do, I think it's, the, what he sees is actually Cranachman, but it does, I agree, it adds to the general feeling of guilt and of being watched that Theon experiences in the Dance with Dragons and specifically in that chapter, he's been let free. He could run away. I mean, true. here he is. You know, he's going down the king's road on a horse by himself and he's thinking, oh, I could, I could run away. And it's like, no, you can't run away. <laughs> I could, I could though. No, you can't. No, you can't. So <laughs> it, but this is because he thinks someone's watching. You know, he's oh, like, great point. Yeah. he will follow him. Follow him. So. so there's like five different things going on, at least there. That's great. <laughs> Typical George. Like, which of these things is, is most prominent? I don't know. Which one draws your attention the most? I don't know. What do you think, Nina? <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, just kind of go off of that, too. I, I think the whole mood of that chapter is very ominous. And it's very, yeah. uh, it's, yeah, yeah, ominous is really the, the word I want to use there. It's it's very foggy, and it's very not, not good. And Theon's very much feeling, like you said, very guilty about the past. And he's thinking very negative thoughts about the past. So feeling like he's being watched. Whether or not he is literally being watched as opposed to, you know, it's just sort of a thematic choice, I think gets to kind of setting the mood for the chapter of he is remembering, this is remembering a time he was here before that is very different from the time now. And it's it's gotten a lot worse from the time he was here before. Yeah, that's a really good thing to bring up is that he had such a contrast when he was there with Rob as one of Rob's friends and they were all so optimistic and writing off the, the war. The past and, is watching him as much as anyone there is literally watching Oh, yeah. Him. And that very much relates to his guilt that we discussed, because obviously that's one of the major things he feels guilty over. And Joe, what do you think? Well, to what Nina said, yeah, I think that's... I really like that chapter because it begins the physical retracing of steps and the memory that has to come along with that. He obviously already has guilt, but it's one thing experiencing that in the Dreadful, or if he spends his whole book somewhere else in the north, then he's never going to get to quite the same level as he does because this is essentially the warm-up act for Winterfell. This is, okay, yeah, remembering Mo Kalin, that's one thing, but then he has to go back to Winterfell, really retrace his old crime. So as Nina said, that's just, that's what really hits on it, that you were there, you can, like the memory is assaulting you, you're not getting away with it. And I, I think as for the watching thing, 
Fionn was never watched enough growing up. He was the mm. afterthought. He never fit in. So by the time he was a teenager, when we met him, he was the one to kick Garrett's head and he was the one to make this joke and uh, uh, smile at the, um, the joke that no one else knew and all, all this kind of thing. He wanted all the attention. So then he went and did something to gain the most attention from dear old daddy over in Pike. And that's, that's how he wound up here. So now he has the reverse of that. He doesn't want to be watched He because he has all this guilt and he has this physical shame as well. He doesn't want anyone to see what's become of him because it's, it's a pride factor, an ego factor for him uh, in the same way that he doesn't ever want to be touched. Uh, so where he once wanted eyes, now he has them when he when that's the last thing he wants. And that, that goes through from here again to Winterfell where he's going to be watched through the tree by, by Bran as well. So he's watched all the time now. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's a really good answer. Yeah, very good. You guys gave a wide variety of answers there, and I think they all they all work, um, which is just a testament to George's ability to do so much within a scene. The next question, uh, Ramona Zamfir, Cersei never thinks about murdering Robert's bastards, which I think initially the question was presented by her as perhaps a, a, a notion of conspiratorial. Maybe someone else did it. But, event, but upon thinking about this, I think a lot of us realize this is, it says more about Cersei than it does about perhaps missing information. Because he does mention that she would have killed Mia, Mia Stone. And she does think that Catelyn should have killed Jon Snow, which we remarked on at the time. It was like, whoa, well, that's something, isn't it? So maybe that's what it is. And, and thematically, lion, you know, lion, it's usually the males that do this. The, uh, when a male lion takes over pride, they kill the children of the previous male. So it's, Cersei is really acting like a lion and doing this. But maybe that is the point that she, this is really what she is. Uh, the lack of guilt might... Just that is the point, perhaps. What do you think, Nina? Yeah, I would I would go to that point. I don't think it's particularly uh, notable for, for a few reasons. Number one, I don't think Cersei has any real reason to think about it by the time we get her POV. It's, it's kind of in the past, distantly. She's not actively pursuing it. It's not coming up as a question. So there's really yeah. no reason for her to think about it. And it's not that we need to get everything very explicitly laid out. Cersei never thinks, aha, and also I was the one who killed Malara Heatherstone. <laughs> but it's very obvious from, from what you take away from her POV that she was the one who murdered Malara Heatherstone. So I think the fact that we hear about Janos Lynn, you know, talking about it, the fact that we have Vera saying it was Cersei who did it, and the fact that we have Cersei thinking, yeah, Catelyn Tully was a mouse. She really just should have smothered Baby John. Uh, <laughs> I, I think <laughs> I think that all goes to the point of yeah, Cersei. Cersei is absolutely that really does says a lot. Yeah, so it is more about Cersei. It's like wow, she just doesn't have guilt over this, does she? <laughs> is that kind of how you see it, Joe? Yeah, I think if we had her POV in Game of Thrones when Robert's Bastards was more of an issue, then it probably would have just come up at some point. But yeah. by the time we actually reach her, it's too far in the past. It doesn't matter. Uh, she would rather pretend they never existed anyway because they're staying on her honor. So she doesn't yeah. want to focus on them unless someone brings them up. And in general, she just doesn't think of anything unless it's either shoved in her face or she can see some advantage to be taken on. Or it's like pleasurable. If it's not, like she thinks of like sleeping with Jamie, you know, years ago. Yeah, sure. Stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. But if it's not something she can use, if like the small folk essentially don't exist for her other than to worship her. Other than that, they're, they're like, when she can't see them, they're not there. That's and a great she point. Yeah. And they are there. I mean, think about what she did to like Sunel and all that. Like she, she has yeah. a little but bit of guilt people. over that, but she doesn't even know these other kids. Um, and I, and you brought up the TV show, which is important here because it's part of the reason why I think this question comes up is that they did twist that in the show to make it Joffrey. Like they seem to make it that it was Joffrey that did the killings, mm. uh, not Cersei, which is 
odd, but at least that's that's you know it's part of the reason that there's there was maybe some room here. But I I agree as well that it was almost certainly just uh, it's about her. Is is that how you feel as well, Lady Gwen? Yeah, I definitely agree. Yeah, I agree with Joe's points. You know, and I think there's enough circumstantial evidence and other people saying she did it. It, it hardly matters. I, I do like what you said about lions. So I want to point out that all felines do that. Oh, okay. Even our humble house cats, oh, as I was scarred to learn when I was a child. <laughs> no, don't, yeah, don't say those that. things about kitties. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm so sorry to tell you. Yeah. I'm a cat lover, but, but, <laughs> but they will. They are killers. Uh, so, yes, they yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that is a good point, though. Cuddly, sweet killers. (laughs) Okay, there was a few other questions that we're going to have to uh, say for another time. So Treacherous Wendy, Guinevere Greenstone, Josh Allard, John Malarkey, a few of you others that whose names I'm missing here because I I can't hunt through every second of the document here. But we will try to answer your questions some other time. We are a bit out of time now. Thank you very much, everyone, for coming appreciate the questions. A lot of good questions. You led us into some interesting spots for us to uh, discuss things. I learned some things that I hadn't considered, uh, which is always the, the way with, with these books, isn't it? You got get gather your smart friends and talk about the series and stuff happens. So let's see. I promised y'all uh, some fun stats. I'll keep it brief. But some totality of, of our Valoritas experience. A Game of Thrones was... 23 hours, 48 minutes of, for Valar Reedus, 19 minutes, 34 seconds per chapter. Uh, Clash of Kings was 32 hours, 35 minutes, 27 to 56. So almost 28 minutes per chapter, so quite a bit more. It continued to increase for A Storm of Swords, 41 hours, uh, 13 minutes for A Storm of Swords coverage, 30 minutes per chapter. A Feast for Crows uh, was 32 hours total. Of course, there's a lot fewer chapters. 42 minutes per chapter, and then Dance of Dragons dropped back down to 38 minutes per chapter because they're slightly shorter. Feast does have the longest chapters, but Dance was the longest 47 hours of podcasting. That's the edited version. So the, the video versions are longer, uh, tend to be roughly 5 to 10% is cut out of each video. So the total length of Val Read is not counting the wrap-up episodes because I'm, I'm counting my chapters. Um, would be 177 hours, 2 minutes, 50 seconds. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then another 12 <laughs> hours from these wrap-up episodes. So there you go. That's that's the totality of it. So we really did we really did accomplish a lot there. That's a nice, long, fun challenge that we went through. And I think so all So you can are... do it in a week if you really want to. If you really <laughs> dedicate yourself, you can do it in just over a week. If anyone's oh. not busy. <laughs> Well done. Well done. So um, thank you very much to our guests. Uh, again, let's hear what you guys have coming. Uh, Nina, you're, you, what's, what's, what have you been writing about over on goodqueenalley.tumblr.com with one L, as I like to say? I, I don't know. Everything and anything. Yeah, that's, that's always the case. You can't keep up. I mean, I can't keep up with all your... your you are a very prolific writer. So I, I, I once again, will recommend people check out your, yeah. your stuff. I don't know. I've been writing about just wrote like <laughs> questions about the Lannisters over the past two days, and <laughs> then I was writing things about uh, the Hornwood succession, and then I was writing things about Daenerys, and then I was writing a whole bunch of things about Skehaz. So uh, yeah, there's just 
basically anything on any given day. Oh, and I, I posted a, a WandaVision meme that will only be funny to people who've watched the show and know history. But if you know both, <laughs> then it'll be hilarious to you. Nice. So uh, if you like uh, random asks about A Song of Ice and Fire and memes, then come check it out. <laughs> cool, yeah. I highly recommend it. Uh, and Joe, what about you? What have you got coming up? I know you just you said at the beginning you're almost done with your reread. You've got one or two more episodes one to more. publish. And then what else you got? Just the one. Well, even before I say that, let me say thank you to you and Ashay for involving me in this in the first place. Because where would our faces be without it? We wouldn't have any scraps and scrolls, which, as you say, (laughs) has taken up quite a lot of time. It's definitely been a large focus for me over however long we've been doing it. Yeah, we've got one more episode coming up that looks to be quite a big one. We've just had a five-hour episode for part 18, so I don't know what 19 will be. I'm hoping not five hours, but it might get close. (laughs) And then afterwards, I shall sleep for at least one day. <laughs> and I might say hello to my wife. I assume she still lives with me. It could touch and go. Um, and may, I, maybe there's sunshine or some, something on the horizon for me. But then, and then I might do some more podcasts, but probably those things first. <laughs> well said, Joe. Well said. And thank you as well. We appreciate everything you've done. You and Nina both, you guys, your contributions to Valor Aritas were just... I, I don't, I can't imagine what our, you know, be, we'd have narrower takes. We'd have missed a lot of things. It's been so valuable to have both you guys contributing throughout. So thank you. And Lady Gwyn, uh, we have worked together a lot, um, more so than any other podcast in the community. We've done, we did all our Game of Thrones work together. We are working on Dance with Dragons stuff together. Still, that's ongoing off and on. So... Mm-hmm. This is nothing new, us working together, and it certainly will remain uh, a regular thing. But again, please tell everyone what's going on with Radio Westeros, uh, apart from collaborations. Okay, so yeah, I uh, very much respect f- to all of you guys for uh, your work here on Valoravitas. That's a tremendous 177 hours, and <laughs> show all the work that you put in on Scraps and Scrolls is very, very impressive. And all I've done is just come in and sit in on five rap events. <laughs> so, so, uh, but I'm really happy that you've invited me to uh, be part of this uh, in some way. Uh, so thank you. Uh, over at Radio Westeros, we are a work I mentioned at the beginning. We're doing our Winds of Winter Primer series. We've been going around the regions, catching up with characters, grouping them by region, and taking a look at sample chapters, if they exist, or just where we think things are going, if there is no sample chapter to lean on. Uh, We just released yesterday our Stormlands episode. So that's uh, Arianne and John Connington and Aegon, and a lot of the things that we expect will be happening early in the Winds of Winter there. We got their live streams that will accompany that, that will be coming up shortly. Have some great guests lined up for that. And I am already, or myself and Yoko, I'm already hard at work writing the next one, which will be uh, The Reach. So we're going to tackle Sam and and uh, It's hard Aaron. to tackle Sam. He's got a lot of... <laughs> we're going to try. <laughs> I hear he's pretty Large slow. Man. Yeah. So... <laughs> you can catch him, but bring him we down. We can probably hard. catch him. You will get past Gilly. That's the hard part. And little Sam, don't forget about him. She frightens mm. me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's, that's where we're heading next. And uh, dare I say, we might uh, convince our friend Joe to come back uh, as a guest. Maybe oh, one of go on, then. <laughs> Cool. Well, also, I want to thank 
our mods over at the our Facebook group. That's Scott and Ari and Rebecca and Laura and Tommy and Jennifer. You guys were clutch hanging out uh, in the group, making sure that every chapter is posted with artwork and discussions. That's a lot to keep up with. Again, we've been doing this for a while. It, take, it requires a lot of consistency and requires a lot of mental effort to be on top of things like that and to keep that as part of your routine for so long. Really appreciate that. So do so does the rest of the listeners, um, directly or indirectly, because that really helped us out. So whether you knew about it, whether you can tell, it made a huge difference. Thanks also to Julie A. here, sends a super chat late here. It says, thank you so much for a lovely VRR and for the a Song of Ice Fire community. It's been a fun way to spend a few hours on a Sunday afternoon. Well, thank you very much, Julie. I appreciate your uh, support. We appreciate the, the work you've done as well. I know you've submitted some good questions and and uh, you dove some work with Amy Blackfire there on some uh, some good writing. So y'all check that out. And a, a, a super chat from Fattis Leach, just to keep you trucking. Appreciate that, Fattis Leach. Check out Fattis Leach's channel. She is doing some coverage on George R. R. Martin's other works, the Thousand Worlds stuff. I've been hanging out in the chat for some of those live streams. And that is, that's good stuff because you get some really early versions of some of the stuff that appears in Song of Ice and Fire and allows you to expand your your knowledge and thought processes on some of these themes as well. Also, thanks to um, everyone else who's participated here and there, whether you're a regular commenter, a lot of you on, on Flick and Facebook and Slack and Discord were regular contributors. Uh, you heard your name mentioned regularly. Really appreciate that. Some of the best questions we got came from a lot of y'all and that took us to new places. Karen Sita says, do we know what when's the next Valar Reredus? Okay. Well, we will not have one next week. I believe we'll be back either two or three weeks from now. So we were working out the schedule. We're lining up our guests and we're working on the audio uh, production versions of the Winds of Winter chapters, which, which have music and different people doing all the voices. Those are going to be really good. The Victorian one's almost done. Uh, it's the shortest. So we figured that would be the, fir- the, the, the one to kind of get our teeth wet. Our teeth wet? What? Our feet wet. What the hell? Or kind teeth. Of, it's our teeth. Your teeth, teeth are kind of wet all the time wet. anyway. We're going to drink it down and our teeth are going to be wet. What a strange turn of... Alicia <laughs> <laughs> is laughing so hard. So you guys you're going to dive in teeth first. <laughs> what a strange uh, slip of the tongue that was. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, anyway, uh, yeah, so we've got lots more coming. We're going to be doing World of Ice and Fire. We're going to be doing the Winds of Winter chapters. We're going to do Fire and Blood, and we're going to be doing Duncan Ag. The order of which we're doing those is is what we're working on within the next week or two. So where we will post a schedule uh, in all those all those various places. So just as, as long as you're connected to us in one of those spots, whether it be Flick, Discord, Facebook, Twitter, Slack, uh, et cetera, you'll, you'll be in the loop. Or you can just, you know, keep your feed refreshed and, and an episode will pop sooner rather than later. <laughs> yeah, hit that bell on, on YouTube <laughs> to make sure you get notifications when we go live, <laughs> as they say in the YouTube business. <laughs> and uh, also thanks to everyone else who's contributed from the outside. Uh, people like Michael Klarfeld, whose work is constantly present here, whether it's you looking at the maps behind us or uh, hearing the music that he helped us find through Kevin McLeod. Thank you to Kevin McLeod for the music. And to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for the History of Westeros theme music. 
thanks to our engineer for the sound quality assistance. Thanks to uh, our many lovely patrons whose names I'll read here in a minute. We haven't done that in a, in a little while. And check out Here Be Dragons. Our good friends uh, over there are discussing the iconic movie Batman Returns. And as they do so well over there, discussing movies and shows and hanging out with friends, that's a fun time. They should be getting started in just a minute here. I've got just enough time for the Patreon credits. Perfect. I neglected to read the guys that usually get dropped at the beginning. So thanks to Lord Mark of House Joseph, the snow in Winterfell, rider of Maslacartho, a white dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and talons. Rest in peace, Mark. Telenius the Talon, king of Gagasos, rider of Flarius, a red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of midnight black. And hunter of House Blackcloud, the stormrunner, king of the sky, rider of Tyrannicon, the windworm. A dragon with scales of brilliant platinum silver horns, claws, and fangs of pure white with the eyes of the color of diamonds of fire. Uh, Jeff Gnarly is History of Westeros' long snapper. What a great guy. Here, our peers of the realm include the mysterious BR, Hand of the King, Lord Stephen Stark, titles, titles, Hand of Queen Ashea, known as the best, and of course, he is the captain of the Here Be Dragon ship. Lord Jim, the fortuitous of wars and politics of ice and fire, is the Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville, the cunning, is Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Kabeth, the unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North. Still unfrozen after all this time. Lord Brandon Lannister is the Blood Lion, ruler of Castle Everlore, Warden of the South. Uh, Lord James Tuttle is King of the Stepstones and the Narrow Sea. Uh... Commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet, led by the flagship Caraxes, and the Bloodstone Fleet, led by flagship Prince Damon. Jenny the Just is captain of the ghost ship Liberty, which vanished in the Shivering Sea over a century ago, but has been recently sighted near Volantis, if the tales can be believed. Yo, Jenny the Just, get away from Volantis. If I were you, I think bad things are about to happen there, involving fire, and ships and fire don't mix too well. King Beyond the Wall, Sidney Jesse, the Fallborn, is Lord of Blue Spring and the Haunted Forest. He wields the dagger of Dragonglass and the Valyrian Steel Blade, Red Frost. Perhaps the best armed free folk there is. There's also Sea Lord Sean Gallagher, the Titan's Binger, owner of nine Valyrian Steel Ears. Uh, he listened to, what was it, nine episodes of Valaritas in one day, I, I believe he said. That's why he's the, the, the Binger. <laughs> Speaking of binging, that's that's right up there with that Vikings thing. Uh, Araya Flint of the Mountain Flints was captured by the Weeper only to be raised in the Valley of the Milkwater. Blue eyes and golden memories. Alexander Greyblood is first of the first men, now crowned in ice called Silencebringer, Woodblinder, and the Snow of Night, wielder of the ice-forged greatsword Pale Frost. Our small council includes Lord Benjamin of House Hornwood, Master of Laws, Laura Boros, the Lady of Infinity, a Master of Coin, Bloody Ben Blackwood, Master of Whispers, Grand Maester Liam Mullen, and Drowned Dan, Lord of House Windsor, Master of Karate, Friendship for Everyone, and Ships. Lord and ladies in their castle include Lady Dyerlis of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone, Gregor the Toasty, still Lord of the Breadfort, Ashlyn Winter is the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall, the Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglazed, Lord Bemmy Snuggle Bunny is Guardian Ranger of the Hidden Hundred Acre Weirwood, dual wielder of Valyrian Short Swords, Glorious Morning, and Little Light Wise, sharp shooter of the Weirwood and Ironwood Laminated Longbow, Todd Von Oben. When you fear things cannot get worse, Snuggle Bunny enters the fray. The Bastard of the Wolfswood is First Forester of the Old Gods, sworn to House Iron Weirwood. Listen for the silence. Casey Stark is of House Acres. 
Peter Rivers is the Pale Dragon and heir to Blood Raven. Lady Mora of House Stark is Archmistress of Apothecaries and a Woods Witch. Her castle features weirwood doors with painted moons. Lena Snow is the Twilight Star, bastard daughter of Dane, wife of the Trickster, and Lady of Castle Rivia. Lady Amy Blackfire is analyzer of Eastern symbolism, lover of poles, and dismantler of the patriarchy. King's Justice Sir Troy the Steady is wielder of the Valyrian steel blade, Fate. Our Queen's High Council includes Rebea, Star Eyes, Lady of Waves, and Mistress of Ships, Captain of the Iron Shadow Cat. In the shadows we bear our claws. Grand Archmaester Rennie, whose rod and ring and mask are Quartz Crystal, is wielder of the Valyrian steel pen, fire and ink. The Lord, uh, the Purple Lord, Leo Anansi, is Master Whispers. Lady Wolfbird is Mistress of the Eastern Rivers, Gatekeeper of the Northern Skies, Daughter of the Silver Sea, and Master of Coin. Lady Carlin Carey of Castle Stonesharp, whose horse is shod in Valyrian steel, Prime Rider of the Rising Hills and Master of Laws, rounds out that list. We also have our Kingsguard, led by Lord Commander Namian of House Darklin, the Night Slayer, Valyrian Sword is Onyx Abyss, Sardine the White Knight of the Black Star, Gregor Snow called Snowbear, a bastard of Winterfell, Vaughn of House Furster, Sigil is mailed fist with extended forefinger and pinky on light blue field, Visenya let us hold Dark Sister once, is their motto, Sir Bateman, the Dark Knight, and Sir Roland de Stark, Gunslinger Knight of the Winter Kings. Back from a 20-year ranging to the lands of always winter to protect my King Aziz. Well, thanks for that. And our Queen's Guard is led by Lord Captain Commander Hema Helminth, the Sellsword Sentinel, backed by Sir Rambo, Knight of House Ganon, First Blood, Amber the Adamant, the Knight of the Mists, and Mother of Squids, the Wintry Wolverine, we finish what you begin, Nora Nico and Archmaester Vena, whose ring rod and mask are made of steel, not pudding. Also, shout out to Lord Commander George the Golden, Lady Rita of the Copper Main, the Unbound, Dance the Fervor, and Sir Jeff, Warden of the AC, Wielder of Triad, the multifaceted beard of platinum red and brown, Stay Frosty, that is our beard guard. Last but not least, the History of Westeros' official, customary, homegrown Night's Watch, led by Lord Commander Richard the Ligerheart, wielder of Barry's Ankle Breaker, a flail with blue and silver Valyrian steel spikes, motto, Go Blue, and he is assisted by First Builder Magor Snow, Magor the Cool, as he's known, the Fire in the Snow, First Ranger Liam, aka Sir, waiting on a nickname, and First Steward Sir Jurion of the Torrentine called Pale Wind. I tell you folks, if you ever want to get better at talking, just read that list out loud and, you know, <laughs> see what happens. So thanks again to all y'all. I really appreciate, we really appreciate all the support. Valerie, has been an amazing journey. This is a milestone, not the end. So we look forward to seeing you all in the future for later episodes. Thanks again to our amazing guests. Oh, there was one more super chat. Okay. Stormy4400 says, thanks as always. Today was a lot of fun. Appreciate that, Stormy. Indeed it was. And as that message indicates, there'll be, there's more to come. So thanks, everyone. And you know what I'm going to say next. Valar Rereads. <laughs>